0: Um so Jeff, um, I finally got you in. I think I was supposed to have you in uh, two episodes ago, mm-hmm. but uh, I think you went to a wedding. I did. Yeah. How was that wedding?
1: It was good. So it was nice to see family. Uh-huh. So it was a little bit of a sacrifice, I feel, when you take a big chunk of your time to go yeah. see them, but it's worth it in the end. It was to schedule off a little bit, but it's not too bad.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, family is always interesting. I think what I'm learning now with dating, because um, my family, we don't really do a lot together, but her family, and I've, I don't know if this is what white people in general. Or whatever, <laughs> but, <laughs> this is my first you know white girlfriend or you know, well, uh, my first white fiance and mm-hmm. my first fiance., yeah. but um, I've never I have done so much in such a short period of time. Uh, (laughs) Um, it's like, you know, every weekend's like another family event. I mean, maybe it's not, you know, but I'm getting used to this. It's, it's very different. So, but, um, yeah, I think this is episode, what, like seven, I think now. I'm probably wrong. I'll have to (laughs) look at my notes. Yeah, I edit it later. It's probably episode six, seven or something like that. But, um, so I have Jeff Brown today, um, who is an ecology and evolutionary scientist, Uh, is getting his PhD at Rutgers. He loves animals, Um, he is a D1 athlete and he is a black belt tapper. Um, Well, actually, you just got your purple belt, right? Like, Mm -hmm. uh, Memorial Day. On Monday, yeah. Yeah, 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 congratulations. Oh, thank you. Uh, About time everybody's getting pissed. They're like, hurry up and give this man his purple belt. It's not fair. i was one of those people <laughs> but, um, yeah um thank you for you know joining me for an episode um you actually are what well, or was the episode that i was like man i can't wait to do this one like people don't understand like i was saying i was saying in previous episodes uh like jeff is one definitely one of the smartest people i ever met in my life um my brother is incredibly intelligent like he's uh he's a mechanical i mean a mechanical engineer um just like me but he went to pursue higher education uh so he's getting his um masters right now um i consider him one of the smartest people i've ever met um but you know he him more in the sense of like engineering Mm -hmm. you know that kind of stuff you would just like all types of stuff I mean it's just like you can talk I can literally can talk to you about anything and you're just like oh well I know this and this and this and, I live up there. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know when you you what I really appreciate is when you don't know something you say I actually don't know much about that field and like most people you know they kind of like say something even though they have no idea what they're talking about but you just straight up hey I'm, I actually don't know much of that field and um, you should probably talk to somebody else. <laughs> so I really appreciate that. But, um, yeah, I guess the first thing we can get into is how did you get into the field that you're currently in? Um, what created this interest in you to, like, be kind of like a Steve Irwin <laughs> you know, uh, Coyote Peterson type of guy, right? Like, what was that? Uh, Was it, you know, childhood stuff? Like, yeah, explain explain to me.
1: So I think you touched on a good point already when I was younger, and a small part of me still today wants (laughs) to be the next Steve (laughs) Irwin. Oh, okay. And a big part of that had to do with the fact that when I was growing up, I was fairly limited in what my mom would let me, you know, do. Mm. But media I was allowed to intake, and I think a lot of that came with a bit of her worry being like a single mother. She was mm-hmm. a little overprotective. So I was essentially only allowed to watch Animal Planet on TV. <laughs> and How many brothers and sisters do you have? I have one uh, older biological sister and then an older stepbrother and a younger stepbrother. Oh, okay, okay. Um, but the big thing was, was, like, no Comedy Central, no yeah, Cartoon yeah, yeah. Network. And I fell in love with animals because they're so strange. There's so many things they do that are so different than... You know, what we can do as humans, you think of something as simple as a, a bird can fly. Like, I wish I could fly. <laughs> yeah. um, but you learn even more crazy things, like a lot of the animals that live deep under the water, can see color spectrums we can't imagine, you mm-hmm. know, produce their own light. And it was that kind of fascination that things were so strange. It was almost like, you know, every little kid loves Pokemon, but real <laughs> this world is real animals Pokemon. <laughs> are yeah, just as bizarre. And that sparked my initial interest. I was fortunate enough that my high school offered um, not only regular biology, but AP biology, so I got to to pursue that a little bit more. (laughs) And then when I went to college, I really didn't know much about what you could do with a biology degree, or an ecology degree for that matter, (laughs) Mm -hmm. so I just harassed professors until one of them essentially let me work in their lab, and I realized that I really liked not the work I was doing, because I was counting seeds for hours on end, which gets a little monotonous, but the questions they were addressing, I thought that was kind of fascinating. Hmm. Um, The whole system I worked with was in the Marianas, which is an island chain about equidistant between Japan and Australia, and a single species of snake, the brown tree snake, was introduced to Guam during World War II, roughly.
0: Oh, why, because of boats or something?
1: There is a large Air Force and Navy base Hmm. Anguilla, is was a good staging area, right? War in the Pacific. It's like I said, pretty close to Japan, so a good jumping off point, a good defensive point, and because so much cargo was coming into and leaving that port, uh, okay. it's the snake's native to I think the Philippines and around that area, Malaysia maybe. Mm-hmm. So it was introduced, and a single species then changed the entire island because <laughs> it ate every single well, not a single snake, but. The species, as it reproduced, ate yeah. every single bird on the whole island. Yeah. So That's it's insane. Now, yeah. Wow. There's now an entire island without birds. And so that's a pretty small change when you think of it, right? You mm-hmm. introduce one species and you change the entire ecosystem. And so that's the type of stuff that I've always found really fascinating, that the world is pretty novel, pretty unique. And a lot of these systems that have evolved over hundreds of millions of years, we as people are now actively shuffling and actively changing. Mm -hmm. And so that's the work I do a lot now, is seeing how humans influence the natural world.
2: Mm.
0: So how did you get on this track? Um, Like you went through AP uh, biology classes and then you got into Rutgers, and then you got your bachelor's in uh, biology? So so that
2: was
1: a little different. So I grew up outside of Boston, just went to a pretty typical public school. Mm -hmm and when I was looking at colleges I wanted somewhere that had a good biology program and I also wanted somewhere I could run because I ran track in high school and I wanted to run track in college and so I looked at a lot of universities in New England because there's plenty of those and then I kind of stumbled across Rice University which is down in Houston and it was one of those times where you just have a good fit and it feels right. When I went to visit, oh, that's right. mm-hmm. The coach is really friendly, and their biology program was really interesting. They were doing this work in the Marianas that I ended up being a part of, which was cool. But they were also doing a lot of work with invasions of all sorts, from down to like beetles to grasses. And so I thought that that'd be an interesting fit. And Ended up applying and getting in, and like I said, when I was there, I didn't really know what I was doing. All I knew was I wanted to study biology. All I knew was I liked animals, essentially, and I wanted to work with them in some capacity. Mm -hmm. And I remember having a conversation with my mom when I told her that I wanted to be a biology major, which went something like, hey, mom, I think I'd like to study biology. And her response was, what are you going to be, a zookeeper? (laughs) And it was kind of hard, honestly, because at that point, I didn't know what you could do. And so that's where my path first started, just trying to learn what you can actually do as a biologist, and I finally found out that, turns out people will pay you to go to grad school if you're (laughs) studying certain questions. And so that's how I ended up at Rutgers, actually because the textbook I used for my invasion ecology class, I was like, I like this textbook, looked at the author of the textbook, sent them an email, that ended up with a Skype interview, that ended up with an application, now I work with uh, the author of the textbook I used as an undergrad. Wow. So that's how I ended up at Rutgers. That's
0: awesome. Um, before we even move on, uh, what is your mother's uh, background? And like eth- ethnically. Yeah, so my mother,
1: like ethnically, you said?
0: Ethnically, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of strange. We're not 100% sure, only because my mom's father... Was abandoned when he was a child, so he changed his last name. We think his original last name was McDuff because he's mm, fairly right. Irish, but he ended up being adopted by his next door neighbors when his parents oh, wow. left him. Yeah, wow. it's, it's a little strange. Um, but obviously he didn't love to talk about that, so we mm-hmm. don't have a lot of his family history. Yeah. Okay. So my mother is probably very Irish and German. Okay. And then my biological father is. Incredibly Greek and Italian.
0: Got it. Because I, I was wondering, like usually it's like Asian parents that are like, you know, doctor, lawyer. Like, what does she have? Any what was her expectation of you?
1: I think she just kind of wanted the American dream and like slightly better than you. Have yeah. <laughs> yeah, and because she she worked really hard her whole mm-hmm. time. She her parents didn't want her to go to college, so she didn't end up going. To oh college. wow! She ended up, like okay. working right away. Yeah. And then after working, she went back and she got her associate's degree and eventually became a real estate agent. Mm -hmm. But I think she always valued education Education. in some form, Yeah. mostly because I think it was something that was denied to her or wasn't encouraged. And Mm -hmm. she really wanted me and my sister to try to better ourselves in whatever way. But the other notion being that I think her idea of what it meant to be like educated the better, so you you're an engineer, or you're a doctor, yeah, a lawyer, exactly, traditional,
0: yeah, yeah. Career traditional, class. yeah, got it. Uh, not chair sure Steve Irwin yeah. <laughs> types. Um, so tell me about your project right now that you're working on at Rutgers, um, and also more about that project in uh, I forget the island's name. Oh, uh, the marion Yeah, was that in undergrad? Or? That was.
1: As an undergrad and between undergrad and oh, school.
0: okay. Yeah, talk about that whole craziness. Like, I think that's incredible.
1: Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so it, it was definitely fun. I'm not sure I'd want to do it again. It was good for when I was really young and ambitious. But the project I worked on primarily as an undergrad was as part of a group called the Ecology of Bird Loss Program. Mm-hmm which deals with what I was explaining earlier. A snake was introduced to an island. There's no more birds on that island because of the snake. But what's very interesting is the islands that are right next door to it, essentially, a short plane ride by 20, 30 minute puddle jump. Yeah they have never had that snake, so they're still in their natural setting. Mm. So it's interesting because you can use each island basically as its own laboratory. Oh, wow. And you can say, what happens when you take birds out of a system? Yeah. And then you have Guam, which has no birds as your experimental group, and then you have Saipan, Tinia, and Rhoda, which are three smaller islands, but very close by, yeah. that still have intact communities.
0: Oh, hold on. I think I, tur- I didn't turn your mic on. Oh, no. <laughs> so we'll probably have the audio, but it will, will be low for the first five minutes. <laughs> okay.
1: Hopefully I was enunciating <laughs> yeah.
0: enough. It's still pretty good, but... Yeah,
1: it's all good. But... What ends up happening is you have right, direct control and experimental design that you mm-hmm. can compare things. Like, I was out there looking at spider populations because birds eat a lot of spiders. So, when you remove yeah. the birds, now the spiders have free range of the island. Oh, wow. So, that ended up being a lot of counting spiders. I did a lot of work where I put them in glad containers. You know, <laughs> science isn't always very fancy or flashy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I'd capture them and then I'd relocate them. I did a lot of things where I took spiders that were found on Guam and make really big nests and I brought them over to the other islands to see if they would change their behavior Mm -hmm. depending on the island. Mm -hmm. Turns out they just get eaten by birds. (laughs) Um, But it was pretty interesting, right? As an undergraduate I got to do a lot of cool experiments
0: travel there i mean how was the lifestyle was it like no shower (laughs) like living in you know a tent yeah it
1: wasn't too bad so it got progressively worse the smaller the island you were on Mm. so guam is pretty developed right the marianas are a u.s territory guam is an incorporated territory and the others are unincorporated Mm. territories so there's still you have access to most of the things you need some things are limited, right? You had to go a couple months without cheese and red meat okay. and that type of stuff, uh, but it wasn't too bad. And I had spent one summer working in the jungles of Belize where I was essentially living in a shack with no running water and oh, wow. eating rice and beans. Every day. <laughs> yeah, so th- comparatively, this wasn't too bad. Um, How did you
0: keep yourself entertained?
1: Work, mostly. Yeah. So. There was some pretty interesting things. Like the island dynamics are weird. The indigenous people are called the Chamorro.
0: Oh wow. You got to
1: Yeah. (laughs) They're pretty insular, to be honest. So when you're trying to interact, they have the same term for white people that Hawaiians do. Uh, (laughs) howley means man without breath or man with no spirit. So I was I was the howley out there. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So basically, I hung out with other scientists Uh because a lot of times the Chamorro didn't really want anything to do with you.
0: Wow.
1: But There was other things you would do, right? You're living on an island that's not very large. You end up getting to know kind of a group of people. So I spent uh, my weekends playing Ultimate Frisbee. That was a popular thing. Oh, okay. Uh, We did a lot of adventure racing through the jungle, which is called hashing, which is really fun. So you'd basically play like an elaborate game of tag through the jungle, trying to follow someone's trail that they left.
0: That can't add bad. (laughs) No,
1: it was... Yeah, it's, it's fun. It's like a old military exercise that was basically translated to not so much the public, but a lot of expats do it.
2: Oh, okay.
1: So the idea, it was a tracking exercise, Mm -hmm. so a group of people that are called the rabbits go out, and they have to like make a trail, generally they mark it with flour, so they'll leave like drops of flour every once in a while, and then your job as the hound is to try to catch Catch. them before they can get to the end. Yeah, so that would happen every Sunday, and other than that, uh, during the weekdays, work was Pretty much from sunrise to sunset and when you've been spending all day in the woods when we you just, get home, all you want to do is sleep.
0: sleep. Yeah, okay, um, so what about now, now that you're not, a, you know, a jungle man anymore, um, you're what like more of an office <laughs> type of dude now, um, tell me about your project now. I know you talked a lot about uh, using R mm-hmm. code. Um, and you were, you're were you plotting things, I don't know I yeah. the exact stuff, but...
1: So, I'll say there's a lot to be said about being able to do field work and then sleep in your own bed in the mm-hmm. same day. So, I don't really work in nearly as flashy a system anymore. <laughs> I work in the highlands of New Jersey. But the project I'm working on now is I'm looking at how protected areas... And So, essentially, if a conservation biologist says you know, this area is of high value, we should conserve it, and then an NGO or the government goes in and protects it. How does that protected status influence an area that's surrounded by, you know, lots of people? New Jersey is really densely populated, so although we could have a perfectly preserved patch of forest, you might have a neighborhood right next door to it. Mm, so I spend wow. my fieldwork going to these forests and sampling for birds. I do this with mist nets sometimes, which are about 15 meters across, 8 meters high, and then when a bird flies into it, you pull it out, put a little Mm -hmm. band on its foot so you can tell if you've caught it before, weigh it, identify it, release it back Mm -hmm. into the wild. And sometimes I'll just do point counts where you stand and count them. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you wait 5-10 minutes so that anything you startled when you walked in is no longer startled, and then you spend 5 or 10 minutes just counting everything you see. And so I'm doing, with R, what I'm doing then is I take all my counts and I try to make predictive models saying, based on where a forest is, what's around it, and the size of the forest, can we figure out what species we may expect to see?
2: Hmm.
1: And this is hopefully going to be useful not only for conservation biologists or people interested in preserving land, but also for city planners. Because ah, if I a city planner wants to make you know, a green space, like, say, Central Park in New York, there's going to be different goals. And different designs that work best for those goals Mm so you can use the study that I'm doing and say okay if I want to preserve a high number of species how much land do I have to set aside and how should I zone the land around it to make it achieve that goal
0: that's really interesting yeah I'm
1: hoping it will bridge the gap between the sciences and the planning, because mm-hmm. I think one problem that happens a lot in science is ideas are put out and theories are put out, but those theories never get disseminated yeah. or never get caught onto by the public, right? We hear all the time of these popular science articles that may be interesting or flashy, but more directly, world? yeah, won't yeah. directly influence our life. So I'm hoping to try to bridge that gap, at wow. least in my field.
0: Yeah. Well, when we start seeing uh, your R code everywhere. <laughs> Well no, something happened. Um, well actually explain what R is to you know the folks that um, you know, are listening in. Um, it's a, I guess it's a type of programming language or?
1: Yeah it's a open source programming language typically used in statistics. Okay. So,
0: so it's not like C++ or?
1: No, you can use it for a lot of functions so you can build sites in it, you can build apps in it, but it's was primarily made to do statistical analysis. But the thing about it that's great is it's open access and it's free. Yeah. So making it free means that it has a lot of users. And making it open access means that people are constantly building packages for it. Mm. So although it did start out as kind of a statistics shell, it's grown significantly. And the applications of it are pretty, pretty intense, intense now.
0: Yeah. Playing well, making video games. <laughs> Well,
1: I will say, maybe not the best use of my time, but my lab mates and I made a small app that tracks our ping pong wins and losses. <laughs> because we have a ping pong table in the lab. And we, of course, because this is you know, what we all study, we used a metric called the David score. And the David score <laughs> is used to, to calculate dominance in birds, so the pecking order of pigeons or chickens. You can measure that pecking order through David's
0: score. What?
1: So we, we of course, now have our own pecking order for ping pong <laughs> that we use this app to measure.
0: Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, wow. So it seems like um, – th- I'm assuming a lot of scientists then use R. And did you – so did you build your own code from the ground up with the with your program? Or did you uh, – like – You know, take something that was originally available through open source, and then...
1: Yeah, so I do a little mixture of both.
0: Okay. Fortunately,
1: for a lot of basic applications, and even some more obscure applications, there are pre-written functions, so these are generally called packages. And this package will include functions for a whole suite of things related to the topic the package is written on. So if you wanted to measure phylogenetic diversity, which is basically how genetically similar or dissimilar different animals are, there's a couple packages that do that, so you don't have to write all that from the ground up. Mm. As your question gets more unique or specific, Um, generally what you're going to have to do is, you can maybe take parts of those packages and either alter them or write your own script from the ground up. So I do a lot of mixing of that. The one thing that really is helpful, is since it's open source, there's a lot of websites dedicated solely to people you know, who've been pounding their head against a desk, like, help <laughs> me, help. this won't work. Yeah. And so I, I've spent far too many hours on those sites. My, <laughs> my personal favorite is Stack Exchange and Stack Overflow. <laughs> and you just you know Google, and you hope that someone has had I a has similar had problem.
0: problem yeah.
1: Or at least someone has an answer that you're know, like, oh, I can probably take this and apply <laughs> it to my own work. So there's a mixture, right? Sometimes after hours of Googling, you'll realize you're like, no one's done (laughs) this. All right, time to sit down get a lot of coffee and write this all up. Yeah. But other times you're like, oh nice, this package exists. I'm gonna write one line of code and it's gonna give all these metrics out.
0: Yeah, oh, that's awesome. Um, So I guess for those that are interested in either pursuing a statistical uh, career or uh, career-involving statistics, Scientists or whatever, they probably should start learning R.
1: Yeah, I would say especially because it's free. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no big barrier. Some of the other programs like MATLAB, uh, which is yeah,
0: which is like crazy. I use that in uh, at Rutgers for engineering.
1: Yeah, and it's a great program and it's very powerful, but it's it's also very very expensive. expensive. (laughs) And so there's a barrier to entry versus R. There's really no investment you have to make and. I think a lot of people who use R also use an accompanying program called RStudio, Studio, oh, which okay. makes it look nicer the and goo- it's a little GDI, yeah yeah it makes it look a little bit more accessible.
0: Graphic, graphic user interface for those that don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, GUI. Yeah, GUI. Um, so yeah, that's so funny because I know. I mean, Rockers we have. Is that still there? The um, where you could download all the free stuff.
1: They have so. With MATLAB now, they have, yeah, like, the student edition.
0: No, 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 the the illegal free thing, where Oh. What was that thing called? Um, It was, like, where people were downloading. It was, like, the... Like a torrent? Yeah, but it was only within the Rutgers network.
1: So, my guess is that probably still exists amongst (laughs) undergrads. Sadly, I think grad students don't get to have as much fun or use as many illegal things.
0: They get get in trouble.
1: Um, Yeah, because we're... Almost all of us are technically employees of the university, oh, okay. yeah. therefore we have so, to follow some more strict guidelines.
0: Yeah, we'd have to go into the, the lab to use MATLAB, and mm-hmm. then um, some of the kids would be like, man, forget that, I'm just going to download it oh, <laughs> and install it on my computer. Yeah, I have so.
1: I've been there, certainly, <laughs> um, but one of the things, at least, that's somewhat nice, although sometimes I feel like it is a waste of money, is we can put in requests. For if we need a specific program and you can justify oh, that's it, nice. Rutgers yeah. will often say, Okay, we'll allocate X amount of money so you can yeah. purchase this program.
0: I work at JJ, we yeah, it's the same. If you, if you need something, they'll get it for you. Mm-hmm. You just have to justify it, but, yeah, put uh, in a purchase order. Mm-hmm. But, um, okay, so I think the interesting question is I mean, you've seen a lot of different types of research your own research, um, your colleagues, their studies, You, know, you you've you've probably experienced a lot of uh, environmental um, pieces of data throughout your time. What would you say is is something as we regular people, you know, your everyday guy or girl um, walk under the street that that doesn't really follow too much of, you know, the the scientific, you know, background studies of all this environmental um, data. What would be something that we should be aware of? like something that could be potentially big that we're not really paying attention to?
1: I think there's, I mean it's a pretty loaded question obviously, but I think one thing that most people tend to forget is that we're part of the system we live in. Mm -hmm. People typically think of humans as somehow not applicable to a lot of the rules. Uh, We're not really animals, we've changed because we have, you know, houses we live in and societies and our own form of culture. But we do still kind of fall victim, for lack of a better word, to a lot of these innate responses we have, and in addition to that, we are also just as at risk as a lot of animals are. I think one of the things that people often kind of forget is like, oh, we're protecting the rainforest because we love the animals there. <laughs> but it's like, oh, we're also protecting the rainforest because we get a lot of sources of medicine from this rainforest. <laughs> yeah. Or Oh, we're protecting these marshes because they're natural and we like birds. But it's like, no, you also might want to protect these marshes because if you like living on the coast and you don't want your house to be washed away by a storm, <laughs> that's what you these you know marsh. marshes do. <laughs> so this idea that we often see ourselves as outside of the natural world or that we've conquered it and live wow. above it is something that I think we need to stop thinking, trying to realize that we are just as part of a system as anything else. Wow. And that's one of the reasons we can make so many changes to it. Mm-hmm. When you think about you know, the amount of pollution we produce, right? other animals, natural animals, will create pollutants of their own sort, but we are the most abundant animal on this planet, yeah. so we're disproportionately contributing to that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's this idea that, you know, how could we possibly be changing the earth It's so big and so massive? It's like, well, we're part of the earth, so any change we make ultimately changes, changes the planet. planet.
0: Yeah. Wow, that is uh, some food for thought. I've never, ever looked at it in that light. Um, yeah, I think in a sense, you as a human being, you're kind of just like, oh, well, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I'm alive, so screw everything else. Um, but we are a part of the system, and we do have to contribute. Um, well, we do contribute to whether if it ends up being good or bad, yeah. whichever way it goes. So, yeah, I guess that is some things to really think about. I'm like, man, what the heck do I do that I could do better? Um, But yeah. What about um, some of the most interesting studies uh, or things you've come across that were significant to you that were like, whoa.
1: So I think one of the most interesting things I found, and I think that we can all kind of think about this is all the work that was done kind of originally by I think Trivers in the 60s and 70s, about kin selection. And this is the idea that we, all of us as organisms are basically trying to pass on our genetic material in one way or the mm-hmm. other. And so you can accomplish this either by directly having offspring yourself or by helping out anyone who is related to you. And I think that when you look at a lot of behaviors in this light, think of when you think of any act that's like altruistic, right? Why would anyone ever put themselves, why would a grandparent spend all of the savings that they had for the rest of their lives in order to help out, you know, their grandchildren? Mm-hmm. Why would you ever take in your sibling's, you know, daughter or son if they can't afford it or something happens yeah. to them? And so it's a lot of these behaviors and ideas. It's because ultimately we can still benefit from helping out individuals that are related to us. Because if you just think from a simple math perspective, right? I'm going to be about 50% related to any offspring I have. But I'm also going to be about 50% related to my brother or my sister. So if I have one child, I pass on about 50% of my information. If my brother or my sister has two chi- two children, and each one of those children is about 25% related to me, so two children for my brother or sister are about equivalent to one of my children.
2: Oh, so nice. you start
1: to see. A lot of behavior, um, you see this in the natural world all the time, yeah. so ants and bees and wasps are a little different with their genetics without going too much into it, but the reason an ant colony is all females, except for a couple males, is because ants are actually more related to their sisters than they are to their own offspring, Wow! and so <laughs> you can start to see a lot of crazy things that we do, or that animals do, and you're like, oh man, like why would a praying mantis ever mate with another female knowing that he is going to be eaten. Mm -hmm. It's because, you know, all they really care about is passing on their genetic genetic material. And so I get eaten but I give this essentially nuptial gift of food (laughs) to (laughs) To the female, which then lets me rear all of these kids. (laughs) And, you know, you can see that too in human society that's been proposed for essentially the idea of like... Why are they non-reproductive members of human society? Mm -hmm. It's like, you actually benefit a lot if your brother or sister chooses not to have children because you get, you know, the doting aunt or uncle effect where like it doesn't make sense like oh you shouldn't don't you want children don't you love children this idea is like well they actually are still being beneficial to their own gene pool because Mm. they're generally going to be you know giving gifts to their kids or they're going to have money that you get to their nieces and nephews
0: wow that's kind of trippy yeah Yeah. (laughs) so it's it's kind of
1: amazing it i'm not sure if it makes you more optimistic or less optimistic because you start to think of like oh, that person is so brave, and like, but are they brave or are they just trying to pass on? <laughs> or is it on... just
0: through genetic, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it, it becomes,
1: becomes trippy, but.
0: Maybe that's why I want my brother to have kids be I do. Yeah. It's like, hurry up and make me uncle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because um... that still benefits you at the yeah. end of the day. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's uh, another piece of information that's uh, food for thought. Um, so after you get your PhD, what is your end game? What is your, do you want to go into teaching? Do you want to go into more research?
1: Yeah, at this point it's kind of funny because I'd really be happy doing a lot of things. I do really like the pure research element of my job, but Mm -hmm. I really enjoy teaching. I think that's kind of the highlight of my day, even though it can be a little draining and exhausting. And I think part of that stems from the fact that I always get excited when other people get exciting. And I find the information that I like interesting and so if I can inspire one or two other people with that information it you know kind of makes you feel that warm and fuzzy feeling so if I could end up in a position that is primarily a teaching role so at a liberal arts college perhaps that would be ideal but you can still get the same reward of you know inspiring other individuals at larger universities like Rutgers but it's at a different scale. So instead of perhaps teaching to a group of 30 or 40 highly motivated students, and maybe 10% of them go on and continue on in the sciences, at a university like Rutgers, (laughs) you're serving a much larger pool of students, and most of the time the students you are teaching are doing it because they're filling a requirement, more so than they're interested in the subject. (laughs) But through doing research, you can then Either work with highly motivated students or work with grad students. So it's a more focused scope and you can still take on the role of a mentor and a teacher even if you're not doing as much direct teaching. In terms of continuing research I'd always like to continue research at some level because I just find this fascinating. I think it's an itch once you start to, essentially once you get questions that become harder to answer, I, just I find that like as a challenge. Yeah, it's always good when you're like, you make a study and the results of that study match what you expected, but it's really fun when you study a question and all of a sudden you get the complete opposite answer because mm-hmm. you're like, okay, well, that's not what I expected. Can I now figure out why I got this answer? Hmm. So if that, teach, if that research is, I work with a couple undergrads at a liberal arts college, as we were talking a little bit before this. I'm looking at a position at the American Museum of Natural History, so that's talking to the general public much more than scientists or yeah. learning scientists, but you can still have that positive influence. Or if I'm working at a big R1 institution where you know I might be teaching a large lecture where students are <laughs> largely uninterested, but then I'm working with some grad students or some highly motivated undergrads yeah, to I really push is. their work
0: on. Um. Uh, well, maybe I'll see you at the museum. Yeah. <laughs> My Fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, good luck with that. Any any route you take, uh, you're gonna do amazing. Um, what advice would you give to those that are also pursuing kind of or interested? I mean, like you know, Michelle. Mm-hmm. Um, she's very focused, you know, on, on pursuing something like this. Um, I know a lot of people. They hear, oh, they're going after their PhD, and a lot of people have no idea what that entails. Um, I mean, even in the, in the sense of lifestyle, mm-hmm. right? Like, you live so differently <laughs> than what my peers at your age or, or you know, people that I know around your age, they live their lifestyles. It's very <laughs> different, right? Um, what kind of advice, and, and maybe give like a day-to-day, you know, picture of that.
1: Yeah, so I think questions. the biggest advice is Make sure that you're really interested in your subject before you know diving <laughs> headfirst into like a PhD or anything like that, because you certainly don't want to join this career for <laughs> the hours or the money. Um, one of the ways it was described to me once is if there was you know a big circle of all possible knowledge, and then one person you might know a sliver of that circle. Your job as a researcher, as a scientist, is to try to make that circle slightly bigger, even if it's just a small bump.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But what becomes sometimes frustrating, or scary, or intimidating about that, is because you're trying to go outside of that circle, you'll eventually get to a point where either a very few people, if not no one else, knows more about a certain subject than <laughs> you. Yeah. And I had this moment the other day, which was, I was invited to give a lecture in South Africa, and when I got the invitation, I kind of was like, are you sure you mean me? Like, is there someone else that you would rather see talk? Because it it does get intimidating, you get to this point where you're kind of on your own. You can't ask anyone else for help Mm. because you're outside of this circle basically trying to establish yourself. So you have to be kind of comfortable being self-motivated and realizing that you will eventually get to a point where there will be people there to help you but you're going to really have to push out on your own because you no one else will know the answers for you
0: yeah so
1: being self-motivated being kind of comfortable being you know out in a new situation and then realizing that you may not live the most glamorous lifestyle so Mm -hmm. since your lifestyle isn't very glamorous you should at least enjoy the questions you're working with
0: yeah Mm. uh what about the the like day-to-day hours Uh, I know like lately you're I mean, you, you talk about how hard it is to get to the gym, you know, um, even though you still will win a tournament regardless. Um, you know, just like like you're, you're spending time teaching, you're spending time doing your research, you're juggling multiple, you know, balls.
1: Yeah, the day-to-day can be a little hard to predict sometimes, especially because you might have a week where you have absolutely nothing scheduled. So you can organize your time however you want but then the next week you might not have a moment to breathe.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, learning to chunk out time where you can is really useful. The one thing that I found as helpful is I try to set a limit on when I stop working because with research especially, you're never going to have Finish. a day where you are stick, yeah, stick a flag down and say, I've solved all problems. <laughs> um, so for a day to day, what I typically do is I try to wake up and exercise in some form. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes, you know, Mondays and Fridays, I try to get in for jujitsu before work. Other days I just like to lift or run because it wakes me up and kind of gets me going. I would say that although you have people out in the field and you have people who work other hours, we still have somewhat of a normal like office hour-y time where from about eight to five is when Buildings are going to be the busiest. Labs are going to be the busiest. And I like to work during those hours, mostly because if I have questions, I can ask other people. If I want advice about something, there's people around. But if you're not directly teaching, or you don't have any meetings, there are other people who just work better at night. Mm -hmm. And since you're a researcher, and since you have to set your own schedules, some people won't come in until noon, but then they'll leave at 9 or 10 at night. Mm So, some days it will all be about when you prefer to work and how you prefer to work. But, as you get more responsibilities or depending on your funding source, so right now I'm funded as a lecturer, which means that I'm in charge of my own course and it's a summer session, so it's condensed. (laughs) Uh, Monday through Thursday from 12.30 to 3.30 every day I am teaching. So, I'm in front of a group of students (laughs) and I am lecturing or I am helping them go through material or overviewing projects. So that's something that I have to schedule the rest of my day around. So I know that on these four days I have an obligation from 1 to 3, 30, just about every day. <laughs> and so if I have any other meetings I have to schedule it around there. The thing that can be sometimes frustrating is when you're not teaching or if you're on another funding source your days are very hard to get consistent and so that's where, going back to the original comment of trying to set that work threshold, I try to say that after 6 o'clock, I am going to use that as my time. Yeah. So I at least have some consistency in my day. Mm-hmm. From 8 to 6 can kind of be a madhouse. I can't necessarily predict what I'll be doing from week to week. Generally day to day, I'm mm-hmm. okay. But at least I can say once 6 o'clock hits, yeah, it's the my time. time is mine. Yeah, yeah.
0: nice um so a lot of di- I, i'm assuming a lot of discipline comes with this yeah <laughs> I can't you can't just be playing video games and
1: <laughs> you will see people and you have seen that who if they don't have that kind of self-drive sometimes it will work because they'll work with other people who essentially will set schedules for them
2: mm-hmm.
1: that's kind of hard because as you go on in your career you won't always have a mentor you're working under yeah and someday the ultimate goal is for you to be in this PI, Principal Investigator Position, so you should be delegating out. Mm -hmm. So generally, the people who can't really set and stick to their own schedules, they do struggle a little bit. You also hear, right, a PhD doesn't necessarily have a set time limit. Funding sources can vary, but in my department, I think the average time to complete a PhD is about five and a half years, but some people may complete them in as short as four years, where other people will take all the way to seven or eight. And so some of that depends on what you're researching, but a lot of that also depends on how much you're actually putting in. Yeah. Because if you are only working you know, 25, 30 hours a week, it's obviously gonna take you much longer to finish than if you're working 40, 50, 60 hours. Yeah,
0: yeah. So yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I know, I mean, you mentioned funding too. Which is just something that just popped up to my into my head. I remember the scare. It was like a, a year or so ago when when Trump was cutting all the funding yeah. for environmental uh, sciences, and he, I mean, it, was, it was interesting because I know I, I I remember you talking about a lot of students losing their you know money mm-hmm. basically. They, they just had no more funding. Um, well, but you were able to survive, and you made it. I mean, you're still here. Yeah. Right? So good job, Jeff. <laughs> but um, yeah. So yeah, it's it's really interesting. I I probably could never follow that type of deal. It's just I don't have that. I don't think I care about anything enough <laughs> uh, outside of jujitsu and the projects that I work yeah. on that I'm willing to put you know so much energy into. Um, you know, martial arts, definitely. Um, but, uh, you know, and in, in terms of academically, I don't think there's anything that I care about enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know, um, but yeah, exactly. Like you said, you really have to care about something, mm-hmm. right? So, um, yeah. So people out there care, if you care a lot about something, then you should probably be teaching about it and trying to get your PhD in it. <laughs> Um, And just be prepared to sacrifice a lot of your time and energy, but it's Um, worth it. Yeah, to do something that nobody else does.
1: And it's nice to walk into an office every day and I get to do something that I find interesting Mm. because I find it interesting versus I'm doing something because someone told me to do it. Yeah,
0: Exactly. That's the big big thing I would
1: say. You get to really follow your passion. You're not following anyone else's
0: plan. Absolutely. Um, so I've seen you work at and train you know your lifestyle you just perform at an incredibly high um, level it, it, there's just no way other way to say it like you perform with intense focus in your school and also when you're on the mats like there's just you are like a high performing human being right um, how do you so I, my question is like how do you continue to do it you is there a secret? Is there <laughs> supplements, um, sleep, the way you sleep, the sleeping schedule, um, diet, uh, recovery methods for martial arts? Or, you know, I mean, you even have an intensive, uh, pretty intensive lifting program that you, well, I don't know if you still do it, but you were doing it before. Yeah. Um, you got really big and scary. Um, you still are scary, but you were significantly a <laughs> lot bigger. <laughs> but um, yeah, like what would you put? That, I guess, I don't know, do you have anything that you put these, uh, or that high level ability in?
1: I think that part of it comes down to my interest, right? We were just talking about, like, you have your projects that you're really passionate about. Mm -hmm. And for me, kind of my, I guess, maybe blessing and curse is when I like something, I want to do it to the best of my abilities. Yeah. However, if I don't really like something, I often let it fall to the wayside. Uh And so I have been chastised many a times for my (laughs) lack of social life. But I personally think that the interactions I have at work in the gym are very fulfilling. (laughs) I think that is kind of my my social life. But it's one of those things where if I want to do something, I want to do it well. I don't like to do anything poorly. I don't like to commit myself to something if I know I won't do a good job doing it. Mm -hmm. With... Working out and lifting I find it incredibly cathartic because when I am in the office all day and it is frustrating or If I've been sitting for a long period of time just that rapid change is really helpful I think it also is helpful with jujitsu because it's still Highly physical but also highly mental Mm -hmm. so that's nice stimulation this idea that I'm getting to learn something although it's not Directly work related. I'm getting to see improvement, which is really nice. I like these trackable metrics, which is I think one of the things that really got me into weightlifting. Uh-huh. Because before I started lifting, when I was just a runner, I weighed 125 pounds.
0: No, and I was the are same. you serious? You're the yeah. same height.
1: Yeah. So there's some some pictures 125? pictures of me. I was... uh, Bro,
0: that's insane! I
1: was very thin. And so it it helped, right? When all I was doing was running. And so, in my mind, this is where that kind of if I'm doing something, I want to do it well worked out. Whereas I justified the idea, I was like, well, I'm not going to lift weight because any pound I put on in muscle, I have to carry with me as I run. So that's kind of that idea of doing something almost to the extreme even if it comes at sacrifices to other things. Because I did think every once in a while, I was like, you know, it'd be nice to be like strong or big or just Mm -hmm. essentially not look like a human skeleton, (laughs) but I could justify this kind of crazy lifestyle of running all the time because that's what I wanted to do well. And then as soon as I stopped running after college, I was like, well, I need something to do. I'll try, you know, weightlifting. This is something I've kind of always thought of. And it was once again that addiction of like, okay, I'm going to do this, so I want to do it well. And that's coupled with the idea of you can see, okay, numbers are going up. I can lift more weight each day. Mm. That eventually then hit a limit where, you know, weights are getting heavy and I'm getting sore. So if I want to continue to do this well, I have to start to take into other consideration other elements, such as that's when I started taking some supplements, so I don't take anything crazy. I do <laughs>
2: uh,
1: protein powder, generally after a workout, and then BCAAs, branched-chain amino acids, and that's about it. Um, I'm pretty inconsistent with multivitamins, mostly because I'm not really sure that they do a lot. I've yeah. been, sometimes yeah. they're referred to as expensive pee, because yeah. a lot of the <laughs> minerals and stuff you don't absorb. You
0: don't absorb it, yeah.
1: But the you know, taking those two supplements and stretching a lot helps me to stay on the mats. It helps me to stay in the gym. Mm. And it makes me feel more alert for when I'm at work, too. So I kind of can couple, you know, these three passions together. Yeah. And by doing each, by doing each individual one, I think it makes me better at the other. Mm. Like on days where I don't exercise, I do generally feel more sluggish yeah. at the office. Yep. I feel like I'm not thinking as fast. So I can justify, you know, working out in the morning and then getting into the office at 8.30 instead of 8 because I know that if I work out, then I'm going to be much more productive in those initial hours and that half hour I missed from 8 to 8.30 is going to be offset by my mental focus.
0: Mm. Very interesting. Um, So you perform at this high level and you've been performing at this high level, I'm assuming for a very long time. You, You ran track. Uh, I remember you telling me that you you were, a, well, you're a D1 fencer. <laughs> no, <laughs> a...
1: I ran uh, D1 in oh, college ran, and oh, then ran D1. Okay. for fencing I was a uh, ranked fencer. So
2: oh, okay, I didn't okay.
1: compete Yeah, yeah in college, yeah. but uh, for fencing you get essentially letter rankings depending on, so it goes um, unranked and then it goes E, D, C, B, A. And A is the top uh, ranking. So, most people who are going to fence in college or collegiately at some level are typically going to be a B or an A. Mm-hmm. And I was, although I did not fence in college, I was an A ranked fencer when I was in high school. Wow. Um, and so.
0: You could have. Yeah, that could have gone. Yeah, somewhere my,
1: my mom was not thrilled when I told her I wanted to run track <laughs> because track scholarships are not nearly as yeah. abundant as fencing scholarships. Oh, that's
0: interesting. I would have thought the opposite.
1: So, the. Big thing is although there's fewer fencing scholarships in total, the population of fencers is it's incredibly small. Uh, which that's is that's probably
0: why my cousin did
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was what eventually led me to stop fencing. It wasn't that I necessarily didn't like the sport anymore. It was that I was traveling to all of these tournaments, and it was, and it was the same group of people. Yeah. So like I said, I grew up around Boston, and I would travel to California or to Canada yeah. to fence uh, the exact same, same people. Per- yeah. mm-hmm. um, so it was you know, the same thing over and over and over again. And it was almost at the point where you couldn't really stretch your competition wow. past a certain level. How much did you weigh? For fencing, uh, I was about the same. For fencing, it's about being like quick and nimble. explosive, yeah. yeah. And so the other thing is the weapon I fenced is called epée, which means your whole body is on target, so precision is really important mm. because you can hit someone in the <laughs> wrist or hit someone in the toe, and, and they lose. Yeah, and they you score a point against them.
0: You so- were doing that with Nate <laughs> at the gym, and I was like, "What is going on? <laughs> like, like, you were flying through the air yeah. and doing all these crazy moves and." Man, it is interesting. I, my cousin, she fenced. Um, I believe she went to Berkeley, UC Berkeley, maybe. <laughs> I, to, I don't remember, but uh, or Stanford, somewhere in Cali. Uh-huh. She went to a pretty like one of those uh, really you know nice Ivy League schools. Um, I just can't remember which one. Um, but uh, I'm assuming she, that fencing helped her with a scholarship because mm-hmm. she she was very good at fencing. Yeah um but i didn't realize how you know big of a of a uh, academic you know push mm-hmm. that is when you do fence I, yeah i didn't realize that it it helps a lot
1: if you yeah if you're good it helps A-ranked. a lot and especially because Although every school does not have a fencing team, the most schools. of the schools, yeah. almost every Ivy League has a fencing yeah. team.
0: The big, the big schools mm-hmm. you want to go to probably yeah. have Ivy Yeah.
1: And those are the schools that also have some polls. So, for example, Princeton, uh, one of the f- females on Princeton's fencing team right now, recently competed in the Olympics. Oh, wow. So, the hmm. Ivy Leagues also tend to have very strong programs, so then that can bring even more pull for helping you get into those programs
0: all right so yeah did you do you regret doing track instead of fencing would you have preferred to stick with fencing now after your life or whatever so
1: i actually still fence every once in a while oh you do there's two two, there's two clubs um not too far from here at all that have Essentially the fencing equivalent of open mat.
0: Wow. And so you can pay like ten bucks
1: and go fence and I still have all my old equipment. Are
0: they are they A rank guys? Are they all really good guys or
1: So there's a mix Girls Um, girls, Girls? There's not the ones I go to I'm I'm going to more so for fun and because they're kind of this open mat type format, a lot of the people Aren't nearly as competitive. Yeah. I think there's like a B-ranked guy, and I so I lost my A. So you have to keep your ranking. Oh, that's right.
0: You did say that. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: right now I'm only a B, um, <laughs> and but it's one of those things where, if I were to try to regain my A, I would have to sacrifice a lot of other things. And for me right now, it's just is that fun. A priority. Yeah. I went to a tournament last year to keep my B, um, which was you know it was fun. Did,
0: but- you, did you win like?
1: So, I took second place, which keeps my B. If I had won, I would have gotten my A. A.
0: So what happens
1: is the letters given out to a tournament depends on who's there. So there's some tournaments that are open to all, so you can just register. There's some tournaments that are only open to certain rankings and above. And so what may happen is you could go to an unranked tournament. But if at that unranked tournament there's 20 As, and you win, you'll likely get your A. Because the rankings mm. given out are dependent on who's in that pool. What versus, if BJJ
0: worked like
1: that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Top get the your, black
0: belt, give me my black belt.
1: <laughs> just take it from them. Versus you could go to a C and uprank tournament. Yeah. But if only C's show up, if you win that whole tournament, you might only get your B. If oh, the, if if you might not that, even get yeah, You something.
0: might not even get it. Wow.
1: So it's very dependent on... Who comes so obviously the bigger the tournament the more more, matters.
0: Wow, that's really cool Um, Would you say that so I'm assuming you've never done martial arts prior to that?
1: No, I the first time I did martial arts was When I stopped running track because I injured my back Oh, yeah, I was looking for a form of cardio I could do that wasn't killing pounding So I started boxing that was Mm -hmm. the first time I did any form of martial arts.
0: Wow. So would you say that fencing helped you in that at all? or
1: I think fencing helped a little bit with um, distance gauging mm-hmm. and kind of judging how far you are away from another person. I think the most helpful thing fencing taught me was just the discipline, which is what you learn in a lot of sports. Yeah. But my fencing coach, as many of a lot of the very good ones, was Eastern European and very strict. And so I started fencing... <laughs> I don't know, maybe when I was 10 or 11, oh, so wow. I was pretty so young, <laughs> and you immediately learn not to mess up when you get hit with a nice wooden spoon every time you <laughs> step out of bounds. And the other thing that was taught to me a lot is, so fencing, the guy's name was Zorin, which people always laughed at. Zorin. <laughs> yeah, Very close to Zorro, and of course our place is called Zeta Academy, so a patch, <laughs> you wear like your associated patch on your... Arm was like a Z, almost like the Zoro Z. That is
0: so funny, man. Um, oh, my goodness.
1: But he was very big into kind of the history of the sport. So obviously fencing is derived from dueling. Um, and so the rapier, which is the blade that you kind of is the, based off. The thick one, right? It's, yeah, so it's pointed. It's a piercing weapon and it's long. And the idea was <laughs> during the medieval ages, plate mail is very hard to pierce, right? Mm-hmm. It's very thick. So if you have a long sword or a club, basically you're bouncing it off of someone. But if you have a very thin long pointed sword, you can stab where the metal meets at hinges. Mm. So the idea was you were very precise with your aiming and you'd aim for say the neck where the helm and the plate mail meet or the shoulder where the joint meets or the kneecap, anywhere where the armor, the plate. And so instead of just kind of wildly hacking and slashing, you'd aim for these precise points. And then as a result, right, that became a popular fighting of, style of fighting. It also worked very well in alleys or in streets where you didn't have to worry about swinging back and forth because you're just stabbing. Yeah. And because of that, it's right derived from a sport where you were essentially potentially killing each other. <laughs> and so he was <laughs> very <did> <laughs> Yeah, he was very big into the respect, right? You always called it your weapon because that's ultimately what it was. Mm-hmm. Just like you would never point a gun at someone you weren't supposed to be pointing your oh, blade at someone wow. who's not wearing a mask because you don't want to potentially injure them. So there's a lot of those kind of small nuances. Yeah, The idea of, right, it's a solo sport where, yes, you have a coach, and yes, you may be on a team, but you're the only one on the strip.
0: Yeah, it's a combat, so, it's a combat. Yeah, yeah, and
1: so this idea of you're kind of out there by yourself, and the other thing about that is while foil and saber, which are two of the other styles, do have a lot of rules in terms of priority and all these crazy things, Epe is essentially, if you get stabbed, you lose a point. Hmm. Um, and there's not a lot else to it. And so it's very primal, you know, that you can't really say, well, oh, it's, I lost because of this arbitrary set of rules, <laughs> or, you know, I'm going to use these arbitrary set of rules to take advantage. It's just, you know, I scored, he scored, that's all there is. And I really like that about it, and that's also why I really like track. I am faster than you, you are faster than me. <laughs> There's no in between.
0: Like, oh, it was
1: a bad pass or oh, my hands were slippery. It's just that is the number, that is how fast I ran. <laughs> There's no argument there. Yeah.
0: Wow, that's interesting. Um yeah, I think uh so around here the closest thing that I've ever seen to any weapon, well, not weapon but uh long sword uh-huh. type of fighting um is this Kendo School? Yeah. Oh, there's like a Kendo school in um,
1: There's one in Highland Park. In Highland
0: Park, yeah. I was like, why in the world? That like you you know, it's legit like guys wearing the full armor yeah. with the you know the bamboo stick, and I was like, I had no idea that existed around here. But yeah. I didn't know we had fencing either, so Yeah, there's so, there's
1: two. Yeah. Um, in New Brunswick, actually.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um so let's get into your martial arts background. So you started boxing, I would say um, so you're a buck twenty-five in college. So you're twenty-two years old. You're buck twenty-five. How did you get to 100? What are you now? 80 pounds. <laughs> I'm,
1: I'm 175 now. So <laughs> yeah. what? I, what I will say. And is, then when you were
0: bulking, you're like w- 1 buck 85, yeah. 190. Yeah.
1: I would definitely say time is a big part of it, mm-hmm. and it's hard because you see people online, you see people on TV, <laughs> and like, or all of those like transformation pictures, and like in six months, this is what I did. And so sometimes it's frustrating. You're like, how did this happen? Yeah. But it was just a slow and steady grind. I would say. When I first started lifting, it was, and like I started boxing and I was, you know, you're kind of into that, like, oh, I'm tough now, or (laughs) you think you are. Um, The the original jump was pretty big because I also went from running about 100 miles a week to running maybe 10 miles or 15 miles. And so just eating right and lifting weights kind of put me up. To I think my body naturally wants to be about 150 pounds, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so making that jump wasn't that hard.
0: Which is terrifying. And, How tall are you?
1: Um, like five eleven. Yeah,
0: <laughs> just thinking about it, like <laughs> a buck 55 is what you naturally walk around or around at. What, but whatever.
1: Yeah, I bleed weight really quick. I become yeah. like my. I think part of it is because I spent so long running, I've developed the ability to make like build and retain slow twitch muscle fibers, but kind of the fast twitch fibers which make you look big and strong and fast um, were never really promoted during you know adolescence and puberty when you're
2: yeah. growing,
1: so I tend to lose those faster. I keep my cardio shape pretty well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then once I hit that limit, that's when I was starting to kickbox mostly, so the gym down in Houston that I trained at, I did Muay Thai, they had Jujitsu, which I had tried a couple times, and I was like, oh, "Okay, this is kind of interesting. It's a little strange." Like, <laughs> I ended up getting a ghee. I was like, "Okay." Like, you still have it? I do. It's the it's the gameness one I wear. Oh,
2: that's that the That blue one, oh, yeah. It buddy. was
1: like, it's an A four or something, and I put it in the dryer like the first day because I knew nothing about it. and I was like, "Oh, this is gross." Washer hot, dryer. Oh boom. my goodness! And like shrunk. <laughs> yeah. So my my white belt, I think, is like an A five. That it's, is hilarious. It like swims on me because I knew nothing about any yeah. of that stuff and so I tried it a little bit but I really liked Muay, Muay thai. thai yeah I found that just pretty primal very satisfying and I was really enjoying that and it helped because I was training down in Houston but then when I come home to visit my parents our family friends own a boxing gym and so I oh, get to go there yeah yeah I get to go there and train a little bit and in terms like I worked a little bit there I helped them build their ring and so Mm -hmm. they let me when I come home train for free which is very very nice and I got more into that and I started doing smokers so just kind of informal competitions between gyms yeah and I did one of those and I think that's when I got the real itch to do it I remember getting like hit in the face and realizing I wasn't dead. And I was like, oh, and so, I can
0: do this. Yeah,
1: and so you got back to it, and I re- really just liked to throw low kicks. It was like my well, jam. yeah, you have
0: probably <laughs> one of the most devastating shins I've ever felt. Um, but yeah, but yeah, keep going. Yeah,
1: and so yeah, that was the other thing, right? Shin conditioning was something that I had not experienced before. I think I was somewhat fortunate that in my career of running i had developed shin splints over and over oh, okay. and over mm-hmm. and i actually had gotten stress fractures in both my legs at some so point that's, that's from good. like the, <laughs> yeah, like the continuous pounding motion so when i was developing my shins it still took a while but they were hard yeah and getting kicked I was like oh what are doing like what do you mean i remember the first time the coach was like now lift your knee up to your elbow and use your shin to stop and i was like it's the shin that part doesn't seem very strong um but yeah it was that kind of primal like test right once again obviously there are rules but you need to prove you're out there on your own and so any mistakes you make are ultimately yours any accomplishments you make you can kind of take ownership too yeah and I really enjoyed that and the coach was he was a really great guy but he was also you know a little nuts so he he was like oh did you like that and I was like yeah and he was like alright smoker next month smoke so I ended up doing
0: did he have the accent? And, and
1: no he was not well one of the coaches did um, but he was a little a little crazy a little yeah. out there he was A very very competitive guy and i remember i was training for a fight and we were at kind of a small affiliate of team took which is down in houston and we went to the main area of team took because they had multiple rings and like one cage and so i would be able to train in the ring and this one coach (laughs) had just taught a really slick sweep which is kind of like a hip toss basically the muay thai equivalent of a hip toss what you and, do to me? When, when, yeah, when, you, <laughs> you do a yeah, nice clinch and throw him over.
0: Jeff Jeff has the most insane power from the clinch. I, I can't even explain it. He just throws me around like a rag doll. But yeah, anyway.
1: But I remember I just learned the move that week. I was sparring with the coach, and the head coach is off, and he was actually training jujitsu <laughs> at the time. So jujitsu class is going on while I'm sparring with this other coach. And I got this toss off, and I was like, you "No know, lay! Hey! You know, you oh. raise your hand, you do your little your celebration, <laughs> and then I got a, a spinning elbow that split me open. And I was like, "What was this?"
2: Um,
1: and that was probably one of the first times I got really injured training at all.
0: How many stitches? Um, it where? was yeah. It was, oh, the, it was they
1: they the the oh, liquid, the, uh, liquid the, uh, the li- bond, yeah yeah. Bond, yeah. So they just had to use that. So it wasn't too bad, terrible. Yeah. But, yeah, I was like, what the heck was that? Especially because you're not really expecting, like, your coach to just (laughs) beat you up.
2: Yeah, but he he
1: was not thrilled (laughs) when I swept him. Um, And so, unfortunately, that rattled me a bit. And then for that fight, I did not do particularly well because that was the first time I was like, wait a second. When things go wrong in this sport, they go really wrong. (laughs) Um, And so when I moved... To start my PhD, you know, I still liked striking. I think it's fun to this day. Mm-hmm. I still like it, but I was like, you know what? I remember I have that like funny bathrobe in my closet. What <laughs> if I throw that on and try that out? Yeah. Um, and so I came to advanced, and I came originally for the Muay Thai classes, but I was like, I want to try out mm-hmm. Jiu Jitsu. and I ended up liking them both. And for a while, I was you know trying to do the back to back coming yeah, to everything. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm but going back to this other idea of trying to perform at a high level, recently I realized, especially while balancing work and recovery and everything else, Mm -hmm. that while I am physically capable of doing both, if I want to perform one of them well, it's hard to do both.
0: Yeah, it's really hard to, I mean, it's a whole different system in your mind. Mm -hmm. It's like turning a switch on and then turning another switch on. Um, and you know, turning another one off, and it, and then you know, you do MMA, and it's like turn all the switches on. Yeah, and you know, um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I you definitely have the ability and the talent for it. I think it's just for everybody, right? It's like being in the right place at the right time mm-hmm. or whatever. It's like, what's more important to you? What's more, um, you know? Do you want if 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 you're completely sold on being a fighter uh, for the next x amount of years Mm -hmm. of your life uh fingers crossed you don't get hurt fingers crossed you don't get um you know any outside problems you know financially whatever they are um that you have a good streak and then you actually make it professionally um you know that that if if you're not sold on that then you probably shouldn't be doing it right um Competition is one thing, and amateur competition, like I believe, you know, everybody should be doing that, especially jujitsu tournaments. Mm -hmm. Um, Congratulations on your most recent one, by the way. Thank you, Um, Mm -hmm. Jeff. Like submitted everybody, (laughs) but um, and it was like what under like a minute or two or something like that. (laughs) But um, yeah, I think I think you know when it comes to like being focused, you know, you have your focus, and maybe at some point in your life. You know, you might want to go to the Olympics for fencing. I don't know. <laughs> you know, you switch your focus again. But, um, you know, I mean, to me, it looks like you found your um, love, yeah. you know, when it comes to your the physical aspect of your mm-hmm. life, which is looking like more and more where it's slowly becoming just jiu-jitsu, yeah. you know, or grappling, I should say. Um, I know you you did a fight you know it didn't end up too well um, I'm sure you probably afterwards there was probably some um you know maybe some psychological things there as well mm-hmm. like losing a fight you know getting hit really hard um you know and, and maybe even the fear that you know what you're doing with the rest of your life is is you will have to use your mind once you're yeah. you know what i mean so like is it worth uh, getting knocked knocked mm-hmm. out for really, you know what I mean. Um, so you know, there's there's a lot of pros and cons to doing everything, you know. But again, I think like with you with you with your PhD, like you're like, okay, I'm pursuing this, and this is what mm-hmm. I'm this is what I really enjoy doing. So I'm gonna give 100% to that. Yeah, you know. And then jujitsu's on the side, this and that. Even though you're pursuing it at at an incredibly high level, you know, you're you are tapping out. You know, guys that have been training many years, and you've only been doing it for what, like three years or yeah, something like that. Four, yeah, yeah, and um, you know, and, and if you were to spend full time on it, you probably could be the next whatever. You know, um, but you know what I mean. That like everything in in that in that arena, like your time is only so short. You yeah, know? like to say that you will be the best forever, <laughs> it just it's not possible. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, maybe if you're Floyd Mayweather, but, um, you know what I mean? It's just, uh, you're talking about the 1% of the 1% of the 1%, you know, and even then they have to pass the torch. Yeah. You know? So, um, yeah, I mean, if, if that's your goal in your life is to pursue something like that, there's a, with everything, whenever you decide to pursue after something with all your might, you have to sacrifice, yeah. right? Something else. So, um, yeah, it looks like you're starting to find your your groove mm-hmm. of what you want. So, yeah, man, I'm I'm happy for you. Um, but you know, with jujitsu and you know you've been training, you, you transitioned from boxing to Muay Thai, doing a lot of fights. You know, and then I know you did a recent one where it didn't end up too well. I, I mean, you got knocked out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it is what it is. Um, you know, you 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 you. Not that you're, like, chickening out or whatever. You could probably get back in there and, and kill somebody. You know, it's just a different... You've been out of it for a while, right? Yeah, It is what it is, whatever. You know, people want to say whatever they want to say, but, um, you know, you, you're one of the most dangerous dudes I know. I'm terrified of you <laughs> when it comes to rolling. Um, you know, but... You do all this, you know, like, at an incredibly high level. And usually, right, if you walk into a university, right? And you're, and you're looking at all the PhD students and stuff like that. And then you go to a gym and you look at all, let's say you go to a competition gym and mm-hmm. you look at all those guys, right? And you see these, and you, let's just say you, you, you draw a middle, a, a line down the middle. You will typically see, you know, guys that are very focused on their, their thing that they're doing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yet they're not so, you know versed in environment yeah. and you know <laughs> a lot of scholarly things right yeah they, they might be intelligent but they're not at the scholarly level intelligent right um, and then you have the other side of it <laughs> where you look at these PhD students and stuff like that and you're like wow these guys are really smart but they look smart <laughs> <right>? <laughs> like, yeah
1: it's a, right? it's a distinct look yeah
0: yeah so very rarely do you meet somebody who's boom in the middle where they're, you know, they're they're practically genius and they're practically superhuman, right? Like, good-looking superhuman guy, um, nice haircut, built like a Greek god, you know. And then he's also uh, a Greek philosopher, you know, genius level, right? Like, it, it's just like, how do you get to that? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you don't meet you don't meet too many people that are at that level. You know, very rarely do you meet somebody that is smack dab in the middle. And, you know, I guess my first question would be, your scholar colleagues, Mm -hmm. would you, um, I mean, you've talked about them a lot. You you said that a lot of them don't have any physical activity. Maybe Mm -hmm. they go for a walk, right? Um, How important do you think it is for them to add something like martial arts to their life?
1: So, if I could somehow become, know, the department head and make some crazy (laughs) rules. I would say that everyone should have some element. It doesn't necessarily have to be a martial art, but it should be something that is outside of maybe their comfort zone, or at least pushes them in a non, just purely mental way. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, what I will say is like a caveat is a lot of the great things about martial arts or running or swimming or anything like that is it does challenge your mental toughness as well Mm. like when you're being smashed by a dude that's 50 pounds heavier than you that's a hard place to be in mentally and if you're able to continue to push through it that's the same mentality that will help you succeed when you're sitting in front of a computer and the same line of code hasn't worked Mm. and instead of giving up you're saying okay I'm gonna keep pushing or if you're You know out in the field or you've sent a proposal in or your grant's been rejected for the third time wow if you just give up then you know it's not going to be very easy to push through in your career Mm -hmm. and so if you can take this physical toughness and translate to mental toughness and vice versa right the mental toughness that allows you to work those extra hours are also going to help you get one more roll in on the mat, yes. run an extra mm-hmm. mile. And so I think that it's very important to do both. And I also think that it's nice to have something that pushes you into a different space. Because I think in the same spectrum <laughs> you were talking about, another thing you could think of is the interests of those two groups of people and the interests of the people who are in the competition gym or in any sort of you know team or sport. Is going to probably be somewhat similar but distinct from the interests of PhD students and yeah. one of the things that I really appreciate about our gym is we have a lot of really interesting people there yes but they're very different mm-hmm. than me and the people I normally interact with at work yeah so if you do an activity that is very different from your work it's going to expose you to not only you know, new physical challenges, but it's gonna put you in a new headspace too, where you yeah. meet new people. Mm-hmm. And having this other passion I think is important because the other thing is with me, when work's doing you know, work is hard, I know I can turn to jujitsu. When jujitsu doesn't seem like I'm progressing like I'd like to or I'm doing particularly poorly, I can turn, you know, back to work. Yeah. And so you have other things to look forward to or other ways to progress. Instead of just having one, basically all your eggs in one basket.
0: Yeah, yeah um, So for those that are in the other camp, right, the ones that are very focused on their physical, um, what what would be something that they could add to their daily life um, to maybe increase that level, you know, of of intelligence, you know, like just something you could add. Um, m- Couple minutes a day whatever.
1: Yeah, so I think there's a lot of ways you can add to kind of challenge yourself intellectually And I think the key is being smart about What you're doing to make those challenges because this idea of confirmation bias We see it a lot especially in today's climate where it is very easy to go out and read ideas that reaffirm what you already think Mm. or ideas that back up (laughs) opinions you have And of course with the internet and information being so searchable, when you search something that you are already expecting to find, you're going to be able to pick through the information and find something. So finding a non-biased source of information, which of course can be hard, but something that kind of walks either the middle or is on topics that are not intrinsically politically charged one way or the other and just reading about that. So I really like Science Direct. What it does is it's a website that takes research articles and translates them into something that the population in general might like. And if you're exposing yourself to more information and you're becoming more literate in terms of how do you interpret this information, it's also going to help a lot as new things come at you. You You'll say, okay, well, I know how to read now a scientific article or I know how to interpret the results from one so when someone tells me this tiny tiny smidge from a greater story I can tell that it's only half the story so mm-hmm. I think that's the key is not being necessarily like a skeptic because this whole <laughs> that's a whole other issue but going out there and reading things that maybe challenge your comfort mm. um, reading things that maybe aren't incredibly interesting to you but also it's gonna only take up you know five or ten minutes so
0: yeah
1: if you, for example <laughs> I spent an hour the other day learning about how blockchain startups <laughs> um, how they are starting before they have enough software engineers uh, yeah. to actually fill the position and why that was driving such an increase in starting salaries <laughs> for blockchain engineers. And so for me, I'm not really big into cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. I, don't really I, about, shirt, <laughs> I don't really care that much
0: about- I my Litecoin shirt
1: I don't really care that much about blockchain in general, but it's something that's very prevalent in this world. Yeah. So I thought, you know what, take a little bit out of your day and try to become more informed in this subject, mm. even if it's not completely thrilling. And yeah. what ended up happening was, I didn't expect to be very interested by it, but I'm really happy that I actually know more about the current state of the job market in that subsector. Okay. Because now I feel like it's like, okay, I can understand why these startups are boom and busting so quick and how crypto can come onto the market and then be gone the next day. And so it's nice because I no longer have to just see this happening and take what other people tell me at face value i now i'm informed about this Mm -hmm. so when someone starts to talk instead of just nodding my head and be like oh this is interesting i can be like okay well i see how their part of the story fits the bigger picture now
0: yeah i thought you're gonna be like oh and then i after i read the article i bought like five bitcoins
1: (laughs) i'm about slow and steady mutual fund
0: yeah 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 Yeah. um yeah so that's (laughs) very interesting yeah i think i think it's just so fast i'm so i'm like the whole idea, um, or you know, Miyamoto Musashi, the guy who wrote uh, the Book of Five Rings. I don't know if you're familiar with. Uh, Is a samurai that like um, basically never lost a fight, mm-hmm. had like a hundred battles, it killed everyone, um, used his environment, but you know he's a master warrior, but he was also a master uh, at poetry mm-hmm. and writing and things like that, uh, archery. You know, uh, um, basically what his philosophy was: if you're like you know, what we could say is a black belt, right? Mm-hmm. In something that translates to everything else in your life, right? Um, there's a lot of truth to that. So yeah. like, you know, when you are are training to be very good at something, um, you know, use that training to be good at other things as well. Yeah. And I'm I'm always about like the 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 genius that can also fight. Mm-hmm. You know, like. Like, not, not one that was just very good at fighting, but one that could figure out how to defeat his opponent and defeat his opponent through you know strength, yeah. like, like physical strength, you know? Not just come up with a plan, yeah. right? Um, so yeah, that's always been a fascination of mine, which is how can I be smarter? And stronger like if I was playing a RPG it's like I'm gonna put all my all my attributes into my you know Strength physical ability and my mental ability yeah. my magic and my charisma will be like that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah so which is yeah that's exactly like my life right <laughs> um, you know uh, well Recently, it's changed a little bit, you know, but um, that's actually funny because we're getting into the next part Where I wanted to talk to you about which is dating right? <laughs> <laughs> um, Having that, you know, increasing your charisma. Um, so Congratulations, I know you just started dating. Um, I met her at the tournament. She's she's a very wonderful lady and uh, Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. That the, <laughs> I know you've been you went through like a stint um of a lot of downtime, you know, and I know, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about that, but, um, you know, you went through a rough, you know, situation, a lot lot of jujitsu time. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, you've met somebody else now. And, um, I know at the gym, we've talked a lot about, you know, dating and relationships, attraction, confidence, you know, all different types of, um, talk basically on, Building the charisma how how can I increase this attribute that I don't have a lot of? Because um, I'm really good here and I'm really good here, but I you know, I can't get a number for my life or whatever um, You know and, and and now we're now we're having this um, Episode where I'm about to get married mm. you're you know uh, in, a, in this great relationship now and um, Since you're a scientist right? Uh, I mean, you know how many? people can be like, oh, just do this, just mm-hmm. do that, just do this, just do that, right? Um, but you actually understand some biological science mm-hmm. of why this and that works and why this doesn't work, right? Yeah. Um, what, I guess, you know, I guess talking, like the number one thing we could get into first is attraction, mm-hmm. right? Scientifically, what are things that opposite sexes could do to increase their attraction uh, through science, right? Like, the things that you've, like, studied. Like, what are some of those things?
1: So, first, I'll preface this like I do every time (laughs) I teach sexual behavior in my animal behavior class, which is just because animals do something doesn't give you an excuse to be a jerk. So, you can't be like, well, you know, males typically are not monogamous, so I shouldn't be monogamous. Um, And I'll also preface this by saying, right, I, I do study and teach about sexual behavior for animals and a little bit for humans. But of course, humans are interesting because of cultural values on top Mm -hmm. of intrinsic behavior. But I think the one thing that we can address in general is that there are certain things that biologically, right, we are programmed to find attractive. And this is put really eloquently in an article called, Beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. Mm and. Essentially, when it gets down to it, we are all just trying to replicate our genetic material in one way or another. So we find traits that will increase the likelihood of our genetic material being passed on attractive. So for females, that can be things like right, wide hips, it means that you are likely capable of childbirth, in addition that you probably won't die during childbirth so you can potentially mm. give birth more children. Um, but we also are bound right by our physical environment and our cultural environment. So the other thing that becomes strange is okay well why do some people find some people attractive while others might find the same person very unattractive and that can be linked to a lot of things and one of the ideas is that we are kind of innately bred to like people who look similar to us, but not similar, too similar, and also not too dissimilar, and that has a lot to do with inbreeding, so <laughs> you don't want to necessarily find someone who looks just like you, attractive, because that might mean they're related to you. So oh, yeah, animals way. typically way. find people that, you know, an animal <laughs> that looks like uh, meadow voles do this, right? Meadow voles won't mate with individuals that look too similar, because that What is prevents, a meadow vole? It's like a little rodent, um, short tail. Interesting. Runs around. Um, (laughs) But you also don't want to necessarily try to mate with someone who looks too dissimilar to you Mm. because then you may have non-viable offspring. So although right, you can have tigers and lions can technically mate and have an offspring, that offspring is non-viable, so you don't want that either. So as people and as animals, we are kind of programmed to find someone who looks kind of like us, but not too much like us attractive. Mm. So that's one of the first things is, right, what's going to make you attractive to someone is going to be unique to that person. So the idea that, right, you could say, oh, this person looks really similar to me, so I'm going to dress so I don't look, remind them too much (laughs) of their, you know, their brother or their sister. Or it's like, oh, that person looks really different, so I'm going to try to mimic their behavior so I seem more familiar. Mm. Um, That can make you, you know, more or less attractive. There's also, like I said, a lot of constraints put on by environment. And so, one of the things that can make you more or less attractive is just where you are. In that Mm -hmm. sense, I think New York City is a great example. So, New York City has almost twice as many college-educated females from the age of 20 to 30 as college-educated males. And so, if you are in an environment where, as a male, you are Scarce scarcity, right? Just like in economics Mm -hmm. drives value. Value. Mm -hmm. So if you put yourself right you want to move to New York City (laughs) You're gonna become all of a sudden more attractive as a male because you're a Um, more sought-after resource. mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things where Right we can talk about Posture right being tall is generally sought after as an attractive trait (laughs) for males. I like that (laughs) the same thing can be seen as unattractive because we also know that Females generally are going to try to pick a mate that they perceive as as attractive or slightly less attractive than they are mm. Because I did not know this. yeah, so it's really interesting especially with mammals where parental is very big So a female when she's pregnant is at her most vulnerable state if you think of a like wild animal a pregnant individual slower They need more food mm-hmm. um, you know they are going to be more lethargic and they essentially need a mate to protect them and they're just as at just as high jeopardy after they give birth so if a mammal were to say an animal is going to find the best mate like this male is the sexiest male of his (laughs) species he has every trait that you'd ever want
0: that'd be Jeff
1: (laughs) (laughs) the potential problem with that some individuals might not find that attractive because that male is probably going to have multiple mates. Mm. The more mates that male has, the less time they'll spend with you.
0: Wow. And so
1: that's one of the reasons or a potential hypothesis for the reason why males and females tend to seek out individuals that are perceived to be about as attractive as they are. Because if you seek a mate that may be more attractive than you, they might leave you for another mate. And wow. you need to secure them during that time of pregnancy where you're most at risk. Hmm. So the perception <laughs> of what makes an individual attractive is there are some things like hip hip to waist ratio um, and you know, amount of body fat that are Pretty universal, found throughout cultures. But then there are other things that are entirely dependent on you know mm-hmm. your location, your personal yeah. appearance, mm-hmm. um, your physical stature, your upbringing. All of those are also going to have. How
0: much s- money you have?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's because that changes the right resource value. Mm-hmm. So you might not have perceived traits that would be like genetically appealing, but your resources of money are going to mean that you're also still a secure mate Mm. because you can provide for that individual. So yeah, money does become, right, we all want to say like, oh, we don't (laughs) care about money, but part of us cares about security in some way or another. Mm -hmm. It's like in us. Mm -hmm. And you can flip this around. I was talking a lot about females trying to find male mates, but we all know, We may know that (laughs) often males compete for females Mm -hmm. in the world. the same thing can happen, right? If you're a male and you find this beautiful female, she may also have competitions for mates. So you as a male might not find the most attractive female that great because, you know, okay, there's going to be competition. Or sometimes that's the idea of like, oh, they're too good for me. Mm. The other thing then becomes, though, is when you do spend more time with an individual, you generally find them more attractive. And this is seen neurologically. That is true,
0: yeah. Hmm.
1: Whereas you actually start to form more synapses that are responsible for like the regulation of dopamine and chemicals that make you happy, Yeah. the more time you spend with an individual. So as you start to spend more time with an individual, you start to associate happiness with them. Or sadness, right? Yeah, or (laughs) sadness. So yes, it can't go the other way. You spend a lot of time with someone who makes you miserable. That can be the case. But you can essentially start to become more attracted to someone just because you spend more time with them. Yeah. And I will say that personally from a long time ago when I was working in the middle of the jungle, there was... A female in that field crew, who before leaving, I was like, you know what? She's nice and she's pretty. But by that end of the trip, I was like, this is the most beautiful human on the planet. Because right, scarcity of resources and you spend a lot of time
0: with them. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious! Wow, that's that's some. I mean, man, we're talking about food for thought, but the other stuff. This is some other. I mean, you know, I'm I'm pretty sure there's probably people if they're listening and they're like, this is I don't believe that, you know, this is bull crap, probably, <laughs> you know, getting mad, um, but I mean, you know. I think this when it comes to science it's like this is the general collection of data yeah this is not every single situation out there exactly you know like you are gonna have it's like a bell curve right Mm -hmm. it's like you're gonna have your out the the things that are outside the bell curve but for the majority of stuff it's gonna fall within that bell curve um you know and it was funny what you were saying it's like we don't want to find somebody that's too similar to us but we don't want to find somebody that's also, um, too far away from mm-hmm. us, and I was thinking about my fiance and I'm like, well, she's white, but <laughs> like, it's kind of far away. But she has a lot of, um, which will call it, uh, 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 like features that are very similar, mm-hmm. similar to my mom, which is kind of weird. There you go. But, like height wise, yep. she's you know she's five two like my mom. Um, you know that it's a lot of like like just small little similarities. Like yeah, that, you know. Um, and I'm like, now I'm thinking about it, it's <laughs> a little weird, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, you know, she's, she's a heart like, like, I think what I find attractive in women, um, that's always you know made me like whoa was their work ethic i don't know what it was like just growing up just watching my mom this is gonna get really weird (laughs) i mean my mother like she works so hard yeah she works from like five in the morning she works till like 6 p.m and then uh and then you know as kids growing up she would come home take care of us you know Um, I didn't always have a good relationship with my mother, but that was something that I always looked up to her Mm -hmm. about. And anytime I saw like an attractive girl that just kind of like had everything handed down to her Mm -hmm. was always like, like, I could care less about how pretty you were. Yeah, you just I have no interest, you know, Um, I think what I was looking for was a woman that was, um, you know, passionate about. Um, pursuing after something, you know? Not to say that my mom had a dream or anything like that. She was just trying to take care of her kids, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which, which you know, in itself is, you know, uh, beautiful. Um, but I think for myself, just seeing that hard um, immigrant, you know, um, work ethic, mm-hmm. it was like, my future spouse will also be somebody that, you know, works hard. I think I found, you know, um, a couple of those attributes in my fiance. I mean, obviously, she grew up differently. She's mm-hmm. slightly different, but she does work very hard. You know, it's it's different, but it's it's a it's it's still very similar in a sense, right? Yeah. It's like not too different, but still slightly slightly similar. Um, so it's it's just things like that, I guess that that really do make a lot of sense. I know there's things like wearing red. <laughs> you know, I don't know. There's like the peacock theory, right? Like let yeah. me flap my wings. Um, and maybe somebody will you know notice my feathers um that never worked for me (laughs) Um, you know i think for me it was just i don't know if there's any science between behind like pursuit Mm -hmm. where if there's a guy that just constantly pursues not in like a weird way you know what i mean like the stalker type of way but in a way where it's respectful it's like hey i'd like to take you out Mm -hmm. um you know that's what i did with my fiance was i just kept trying she she, uh, our first interaction was she i thought she was ignoring me but she just had no over for her it was just completely over her head yeah right so for me i was like oh she's ignoring (laughs) me ah this is driving me crazy right um you know and and i had to keep pushing and at the end of the night i was just gonna be like whatever i'm gonna go home but i told myself nah, something special about her Mm -hmm. i have to say something so i i just was like hey um if i if if would you be against me coming up because she, she lives in New York. Uh-huh. I was like, would you be against me coming up to New York City or I mean, I'm sorry, New York. She lives in New York State. Um, she says New York City, but it's really nice. <laughs> I, was like, well, I was like, would you be against me coming up to New York to get to know you, mm-hmm. you know, because I really like to get to know you. I just kept it real, man. Yeah. And she respected that. And she was like alright, alright, cool. And then I went on a date with her two days later, right? Mm-hmm. And then from there, it was just like, on another date, like maybe a date every month, but mm-hmm. then like constantly, at, at least once a week, we had a phone call, right? Yeah. So just that consistency, that persistence, um, one or over. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if there's any science behind that, but I see in a lot of, I mean, even, I think even with you, right, you, you like, were pretty persistent, right, with uh, your current girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I wonder if there's, you know, if you know if there's any science behind that or, you know.
1: So I think there is, I'm sure there are some, there is something out there um, that I have not read. Yeah. But my guess is it's that familiarity because you do start to form, right, like pair bonding
0: on mm, this nah. idea... Oxytocin's releasing. Yeah,
1: so once you start to associate, if you think like back to just Pavlovian, right? ring a bell and you start <laughs> to salivate. Like if you spend time with someone and it makes you happy, you start to associate them with those fond memories. Yeah. Or you, you may have heard the things, like if you're ever going to go on a first date with someone, you should do something that's a little bit scary or thrilling because mm. they're confusing the endorphin, endorphins with attraction. Wow. And so there is a lot of things that, you know, right? We're humans. We are still part of our system. We are mm-hmm. still animals and victim to conditioning and all that type of stuff. And so, yeah, spending time with someone, if you have a pleasurable time with them, you do associate them with those good times. And yeah, so eventually it's like, okay, I've been on a bunch of dates with this person every time I was happy. Yeah, I would probably like to continue to see them. Mm. And so I think that's one of the things, <laughs> this is maybe like soapboxing, which is why a lot of the dating apps are hard is because you start from a position where there's kind of almost an expectation already. Oh, wow. yeah. And so you wow. don't have that initial establishment of what it's like just to be with that person and know them or hang out with them. And you don't really have any gauge for whether or not this person makes me happy. It's immediately trying it's to It's just like,
0: the externals. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, I'm attracted to them and they're yeah. attracted to me. Let's make something happen, right? Yeah. Yeah, which is probably – I mean, when it comes to what we were talking about, which is – Creating familiarity mm-hmm. is probably not the best way of going about. No, <laughs> in that sense, right? There's not, you know, too. Ma- I don't know too many. Out of all the people that I've known that have been in relationships through th- those Tinder and things like that, mm-hmm. um, not the more serious ones. I think the more serious, yeah, ones yeah, some
1: some serious, certainly do work. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: The the more serious ones. Um, I think Ron he used the yeah. one um, where it's, it's goal is to create that familiar. Yeah. While these other ones is completely the opposite. <laughs> uh, everyone that has, that I've known that has used it, that found relationship or not relationship, let's just say, <laughs> I should say, uh, a, a event <laughs> through that, um, right. They, they went nowhere. Yeah. And, and, and like, I don't know anybody that's like, Oh yeah, I'm in a relationship with my Tinder, you know, buddy or whatever. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I guess yeah, create that familiarity. Um, I think I guess with the girls that aren't interested, they're probably releasing the what's the negative uh, chemical?
1: <laughs> oh, I've it's been many days since I've learned negative associations. Okay, yeah, yeah it's
0: like I know dopamine, dopamine, and oxytocin, and oxytocin are happen. the happy ones. Endorphins are the uh, ones that give you I guess that excitement, or yeah, the rush. Uh, I don't I don't remember serotonin is this no serotonin no serotonin no, sleep yeah yeah. Um, I'll yeah, just shout it out randomly <laughs> yeah, in yeah, but yeah um, I think I, I, I that was something that I didn't realize until um, a lot later <laughs> I, I think it was like when I started like well I worked in neuroscience for a mm-hmm. little bit at my, at my job and I was like oh wow there's like dopamine <laughs> you know yeah. all these uh, chemicals that get released um, in your brain I wonder if there's any connection with that you know Yeah.
1: I mean they're certainly in the same like meadow voles, and I was talking about earlier, because they are monogamous. Yeah. Not only does it get released, but rodents aren't always monogamous because they have quicker gestation periods. Mm-hmm. But the individuals are monogamous, or at least they've shown experimentally, because not only are they releasing more dopamine, but they every time they copulate, more receptors for dopamine are built. Or, oh wow! So what happens is the essential pleasure becomes more pleasurable, or so it like mm-hmm. has almost reoccurring and an increasing like sensation. So that's why yeah. basically like as they stay together, it gets more it gets and more reinforced. Yeah. yeah, reinforced and deeper. Yeah. And so I think there's probably someone out there who knows like the exact mechanisms. Um, but that's why we find someone the more time we spend with them, especially if yeah. we're intimate with them, we find them more attractive because wow. we are that is true. building this you know, neurological response mm-hmm. to like Okay, every time we see them, right? Oh, they're more attractive or I like them more each day. Wow. And yeah. So part and of it is wow. you know just that response.
0: That's really interesting. Um, I guess getting into with that whole idea. I mean, even thinking about uh, what you're saying, like, maybe even like when I think about like maybe something on the lines of that quick, you know, burst mm-hmm. of attraction, uh, even with like something like pornography or something like mm-hmm. that, right? Like. In the end, it kind of leaves you, yeah. right, into this like low phase, right, where you're kind of like, okay, well, well, it was just a spike, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I guess in in relationships, you're getting or that that where you're building that reinforcement. Yeah, it's like you know, like you you get into a fight, but you still love that person, mm-hmm. like you still realize like, okay, I, I still care about them. Let me work this. Through, yeah, right. There's still that. Um, but with everything else, with this whole Tinder stuff and um, these quick fixes of just this burst of uh, dopamine, and then it just disappears. It, I mean, it's almost like a like doing drugs, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, like yeah. And then you probably need more and more, you know, to keep fueling it. I guess. But um, getting, I guess, getting from that, that animal you're talking about. You spoke a lot about mon- monogamy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know there's this movement now where it's very like, oh, you know, animals don't get married. Like, I'm just going to sleep with, you know, as many people as I can because, you know, polygamy uh, is where it's at, you mm-hmm. know. And I wonder if there's science, you know, real science that backs – because I, I know they use – it's almost like the um, – what's that diet? The paleo diet? It's like, like oh, oh yeah, um, this is healthy because our, you know, the cavemen ate like this. Yeah. And it's like – Cayman you know, hey, like, died at the right age died. of twenty. He's <laughs> yeah. like, wait a second, um, cooking is very good to do. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, um, so you know, it's kind of like having that kind of like science, but not real science mm-hmm. based. Um, you know, information where it's like, oh, well, our forefathers were, weren't were monogamous, so why yeah. should we be monogamous? I'm, I'm wondering if there's any connection with science, like you said, right, you connect deeper. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that proves the poly- polygamist point of view?
1: So part of it is <clears throat> tough because there are, is a lot of cultural influence through that too, and a lot of that has to do with resource availability.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So with animals, we see just about every form of mating system you can think of, we see uh, socially monogamous but sexually promiscuous, mm-hmm. which means that although these two individuals will be, you know, exclusively maybe raise young together or mate together or display defend territory together the whole time, they may actually be copulating with other individuals outside of that pair.
2: Mm.
1: Um, you see, you know polyandry, polygamy, yeah, so you see things where, you know, there will be a single female with multiple males, you'll see a single male with multiple females, and with with, with, with humans it's hard because part of it is cultural, but in a lot of these places you'll also see it's resource dependent, so Mm. the kind of prime examples I see of matriarchal societies where there's a single female that has multiple husbands is... It's either in Tibet or Mongolia, but essentially it's in a very resource-scarce environment. So what happens is the limiting factor becomes the amount of resources. So females can't have tons and tons and tons of babies because having a baby is very resource-demanding on that female. Mm -hmm. So what happens is a female only may be able to have one child every so often, and she's only able to do that because multiple males band together in order to give her enough food and give that child enough food. And so what ends up happening is one male could never have a child with one female mm-hmm. because they wouldn't. that one male wouldn't be able to provide enough food for that female. So okay. the female is now the limiting factor, so basically all these males work together and essentially will trade off having offspring with this individual. So that's a system, right, where you see this kind of matriarchal society, and you do see a polygamous kind of grouping, because it's resource-limited. However, in resource-rich environments, you see, kind of, that's where you see, like, the idea of, like, the harem, right, a single male with multiple females, because if there's lots and lots of resources, the only thing limiting how many offspring you can have is how many females there are. Mm. So the as long, Every female will be able to eat, every female will have plenty of food, will have plenty of time rearing its offspring. So as a male, you're limited only by how many females there are, not resources.
2: Ah, and
1: then when you have kind of this in-between, you have this idea that you might not be necessarily resource-limited by the amount of food available, but it's the amount of care invested. So if... The male still has to put in work to rear this offspring, and that comes to the idea that I was kind of talking about, right? Passing on your own genetic material and this idea of kin selection and all that stuff is If you don't put in any investment to raise your offspring, it might die So Mm -hmm. you're only going to be with one female so that you ensure that that offspring she has which is Mm -hmm. yours Uh, Will be raised yeah in terms of like the science of all of it it gets kind of tricky because Mm -hmm. like I said even a lot of socially monogamous animals, animals that you hear about this all the time, right? Like, oh, Gannets, it's so cute. They mate for life and they fly across. (laughs) What happens is they often mate outside of their pair, and that, (gasps) I know, it's upsetting. (laughs) And that's done for things like in order to reduce risks of infertility, Mm. because if one of those mates is infertile right there will never be offspring and so what happens is they're mating outside of that pair to increase the chance that they do have offspring in some sense oh, wow. and what happens a lot and this happens in birds all the time is males will raise young that aren't necessarily their theirs because there's a high likelihood it is their offspring so it makes more sense if it's like 90% chance this is my child 10% chance it's not my child I might as well feed it because even if it's not my child, it's not that much investment I risked. But if it is my child, which is much more likely, and I don't feed it and it starves to death, I just wasted all that energy. Yeah. So for humans, it's hard, right? Especially yeah, like in a civilized yeah. society. Well, I, I say civilized. I don't try and like, dissu- like, say anything bad about any other place. But in an area where you can go out to the grocery store and there's food everywhere for you, The idea that, like, oh, I need all of these mates to pass on my (laughs) genetic material in the (laughs) resource-abundant environment. Like, hypothetically, you could make that argument, but it also becomes tough because humans, right, we don't just have sex for procreation. Yeah,
0: yeah, there's a lot more. So
1: that's where the other thing happens, right? Mm -hmm. You see this in um, monkeys and in dolphins and in some goats. Then it's a whole different question because the other thing, right, we, like the release of endorphins, we like the release of oxytocin, we like like the release of dopamine. And so if we have an activity that releases those chemicals, we're we're going (laughs) to do it. So part of that is separate. It's not saying like, oh, this is what animals do, because most animals do not just you know, copulate for pleasure, most Mm -hmm. of the time they're doing it to procreate. So trying to liken it to, oh, what all these other animals do, it's like, no, this animal is polygamous because it's trying to maximize its fitness. It's really all it comes down to, maximizing the number of offspring you have. Hmm. If that means that, okay, I have to work together with other males to share this female, because it's the only way I might have a child, that's what you're going to do. If it's, I'm going to mate with every female I see because the females don't need help rearing the young, and that's gonna increase my chance of having a child, that's what you're gonna do. You're going to do if it's, I'm gonna only mate with one female and I'm gonna help that one female work to raise that offspring, because that maximizes my fitness, that's what I'm gonna do. So, I think you see this often, right? It's like with the paleo diet and all of that. People like to take
0: one snippets yeah. of science,
1: and this is what I was saying earlier, of trying to be more scientifically literate, or at least more literate in any field, is you can almost make any argument you want if you take A certain piece of information that's confirmation bias. Taking things
0: out of context and such.
1: and so I think that for humans and mammals, right, uh, monogamy is common in mammals, but it's not exclusive in mammals. Monogamy is common in primates, but it's not exclusive in primates. So yes, you can make an argument probably for either side, right? Yeah. Oh, look at other primates. They're promiscuous. (laughs) They do that. I'm a primate. I'm not very removed from the system. Or, look at all these other primates you know they're monogamous you should be monogamous it comes much more down to personal and cultural values mm. for us because that's the other thing is this idea of like Culture and society plays a whole nother role and a whole nother level. Yeah, right. We all have these impulses of things you want to do and right. That's your lizard brain. That's yeah, the, yeah, the that's part the, of uh, you that's like, oh, this is what you want to do.
0: What but, is it, the medulla of or something? Yeah, <laughs> it's like
1: this is part of my brain is saying, oh, I should eat all of this delicious like fatty greasy food because it makes me happy and makes my brain happy. Mm-hmm. Um, but then society is like, no, you should also eat other things. <laughs> and so that's the with you know relationships yeah that's the real thing it's if you want to make your argument that i want to sleep with all of these different people <laughs> because i want to increase my fitness then yes you want if you want as many children as you can have that is the that's best stress you're correct that i, I can't really yeah. argue with it we're in a resource-rich environment you want a lot of children that's your best bet i don't want to. But, but if you're if you're trying to justify it as like this is the lifestyle I want to have because other animals do it. It's like okay, well, that's a different situation because yeah. you're not you're not doing this to procreate. And I'm not saying that you're, what you're doing is like wrong or inherently a problem. Yeah. But I'm saying that. You know, what you should say is, like, I'm doing this because it's what I enjoy, mm-hmm. not I'm doing this because this is what science tells me I have to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. It's kind it's of taking, yeah. you know, just admit what you're doing. You mm-hmm. shouldn't need an excuse or a justification for how you act. You yeah, should, and then
0: and then putting other people down yeah. because they're not doing it. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> and, like, it shouldn't be, it's like, this is your personal like, I choice. I
0: am above being because I am doing this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Um... What about science when it comes to confidence, enthusiasm, charisma, um, pheromones? You know, mm. increasing these things. Is there any science behind that, or is it just psych- uh, Is it all psychological? Like we just need to get into a better psychological state, or whatever.
1: Yeah. So I will say my animal behavior is pretty up there. My human psychology <laughs> is almost non-existent. Okay. So in terms of like, I do know that you're more attracted. Like you. You uh, give off certain pheromones, right, Given doing certain activities, and people find certain pheromones more or less attractive, and that typically comes to the same idea of finding someone who releases pheromones similar to you, not too similar, but also not too dissimilar. But in terms of, like, confidence, I mean, posturing is one thing I can talk about. And, right, in general, if you can make certain postures that make your shoulders and your chest look wider and yourself look taller, right, it's kind of the idea of, like, honest signaling. It's sexy. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like a larger body mass generally indicates you can eat more food, you're typically stronger, so you can probably defend more territory. Mm. And so if you make yourself appear bigger, that is more attractive because it's, like, you can't fake On both sides, sides
0: or just men? For generally, to-
1: for generally men. Generally men. Like, okay. you can't make yourself... Artificially larger, right? So standing up tall, puffing your chest out, is seen as attractive. So are it's,
0: those the imaginary lat syndrome,
1: that invisible lat syndrome? Yeah, that <laughs> could be something they're doing. In terms of like why confidence is attractive, that's something that's that, a
0: whole different. Yeah, game, yeah, I
1: think that's much more like the Psych- psychology, psychology realm. Yeah, yeah, I think that it probably has something to do with like social hierarchy and dominant structure. Mm. But that's a whole like we yeah. with a lot of animals you can like I said, the David score it's just direct conflict. <laughs> Who, can, Who won? Yeah. All right. <laughs> dominant. Won. Less yeah. dominant. <laughs> with with humans it's this whole other yeah. mind game and that's you're taken into a lot of things that mm-hmm. I'm like, eh, I'm kind way, of aware of, but yeah. Way not- more complex. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. So I guess the general rule <laughs> of thumb is live in a place where there's not many of the opposite sex. It'll right? make That's you still, more attractive. Right? Make you more attractive. Stick your chest out. Walk with your you know head up high. Um, yeah, and try to create these uh, positive you know, connections. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there you can also land in the friend zone, right? (laughs) So there's got to be like positive, attractive
1: connections. because that's the the other element is (laughs) one thing that I think everyone would like to say is they're like, oh, I'm not shallow. It's not this. But ultimately having, you need a level of physical attraction to Mm -hmm. someone because that's part of this like grand scheme, right? We're all programmed to procreate the pass on our genes in some sense and so if you're not attracted to them at all then that becomes a little difficult it (laughs) different you need at least baseline level attraction and that attraction may grow over time but it's very hard yeah yeah.
0: through emotional connections Mm -hmm. and neural yeah it's Mm -hmm. very
1: hard to form a relationship with someone that you have no attraction to
0: yeah yeah that is uh i mean again it's not impossible Mm -hmm. right it's it's the bell curve. Yeah, <laughs> so, very difficult. Yeah, yeah. We're talking bell curve here. So, mm-hmm. the the guy that's like, oh man, Sheila, I'm a, I can get a chance. Like, yeah. I mean, there is a chance. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, but you, you might not be in that. You might not be in that bell curve. You yeah, might be outside. Just gotta, you know. Hopefully, there's another thing that you can add to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, boost everything else that Sheila's looking for. <laughs> um, this, she lives in uh, imaginary person. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I even thought of that name, but, um, I don't even think I know any Sheila's, but, um, all right, cool. So we're getting to the end of the episode. Um, and I always close off with this last piece, which Mm -hmm. is something that makes you, or that is quirky about you. Okay. Something that not many people know about you. Um, not that you're embarrassed by it or whatever Mm -hmm. but just something you don't really talk about but you do um things you enjoy outside of the realm of stuff that you already do um i know (laughs) for for a very short stint maybe like two or three weeks you and me were playing league of legends Uh (laughs) like you know we'd come home from training and be like all right yeah let's let's get on the team let's go you know and i think i made it to like level six or seven or something like that but that died real quick um i just lost interest in the game. Yeah,
1: it wasn't uh, a priority. Yeah, it's, it was, it's fun, but it uh, was
0: fun, yeah. It just wasn't uh, at one point I was like, oh man, I'm gonna get real good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm about to I'm about to be Korean level right here. Yeah. You know, but um
1: thousand clicks per minute. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. My APM is gonna be two hundred
2: and fifty <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: um actions per minute, right? Yeah, actions per minute. Um but yeah, anything that falls outside of that realm that you're into, like, big time. That yeah. Most people don't know about
1: I think I can... I'm about to reconfirm <laughs> everyone's belief that I'm a giant nerd, but I'm okay with it. <laughs> is that, although I have only ever played it a couple times, I'm, like, huge into Dungeons & Dragons. Oh,
0: my gosh! <laughs> yeah. I would have never guessed.
1: Yeah, so the, the oh,
0: issue snap. is... when D&D! I,
1: <laughs> my older cousin was very into it. Do you, when,
0: like... Paint them and stuff? like No.
1: So games. that's the thing. Like I don't have any figurines. I have the books. I have like five books. I know you're
0: and really into board games. I didn't know yeah, you were into d I mean, I'm
1: very into board games. I've never but played.
0: I don't know.
1: So yeah, that's the thing. I had for the longest period of time, <coughs> I've been very interested in it. Because <laughs> the idea behind it sounds interesting. I've played a lot of video games that are based off of it. Like yeah. they use the same rules. But instead of rolling a dice, where, where right? Where are
0: some games?
1: So uh, a lot of like RPGs, like if you've ever played any of the Baldur's Gates. Oh, that's all, from That's all Dungeons. based on Dungeons oh, and Dragons. That. Yeah, Baldur's yeah. Gate
0: was pretty big back in what, like the 2000s or something? Yeah, what? so
1: all of that, it's actually, they're using directly Direct the Dungeons and go, Dragons yeah. rules. So like all that. the classes and any game that has the attributes you're talking about, right? Strength, charisma, mm-hmm. wisdom, intelligence, and dexterity. Those are all Dungeons and Dragons skills. So that's where that oh, came from. Wow. So almost every month. Modern RPG has its even roots. Fallout,
0: I guess. Yeah,
1: D and D has its roots there, and so that like that always interested me. Right, I'm playing these games. Like, what's their root? And also, like the lore of it kind of seemed cool. Mm-hmm. Are you in, into mythological stuff? Is that I was always kind of interested by it, um, and I think I still am. Like, I listen to a podcast called Lore, which is pretty fascinating. Oh, interesting. Okay, um, but I just like the storytelling element. Uh-huh. And so it actually wasn't until last year that I played my first game because I just said... Oh my
0: gosh, let's just like, do whatever. it!
1: Yeah, <laughs> I just committed. I was like, all right, time to take this oh deep nerd gosh. thing off my chest. And I, was, I just told my friends. I was like, hey guys, <laughs> I want to play D&D. And like, Are I Are these your lab mates? Um, I did I did it with, actually, my friends from college. So like on a group chat. <laughs> Were and
0: they at your fight when we all went to... Um...
1: Yeah, a couple of them Oh, okay, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So... I was like, I'm gonna do it. And of course I got a, about the response, like a lot of my friends also are a little bit nerdy. Well, they're uh, also
0: doctors and yeah. stuff, right? Like they're not yeah. like, like do nothing yeah. guys. Like they're doctors and yeah. know, all that.
1: And so I got about an equal split between like half <laughs> of people were like, no way. And the other half were like, yeah, let's do it. And it became fun for a lot of reasons because it was a really good excuse. We all kind of live across the country now to set like an hour or two aside each week, and we would just do it over Skype. Oh, really? And so wait, 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 wait. how
0: do you even do that? Like, how do you?
1: So you don't. There's there's like websites you can use it for, or we <coughs> would just use a, like a dice rolling app, and then we'd use like Discord, which I think is a website. Oh a yeah, Discord. Use. Yeah, yeah. And so I use that for crypto stuff. The way the game works is essentially someone just tells a story, and of course, when you look at the rule book, it's like. Trying to read the rules for American football. If you just read the rules for American football, you'd be like, "What is this <laughs> game?" But when you see it played, it's not that it's hard. It's not that difficult. Yeah. And so what That's happens funny. is you're like you're telling a story, and then everyone who's else. The,
0: who's the? Um, you the... <laughs> uh, uh,
1: I am. I am the dungeon master. <laughs>
0: How can I? I just want to watch. I just want to watch a, a, yeah.
1: a game play. <laughs> yeah. And so what happens is you tell a story, and then everyone else gets to react and it's really fun because the way it works is instead of me just dictating exactly what happens you get to tell me what you like to do depending on how you roll in your stats that influences the story so you get a lot of unexpected results and I think it becomes very fun when you're working with a group of friends because you're all you know you know how each other will react to a situation but the very first time I ever played I had spent you know, a couple hours reading. You have like a monster manual and all this stuff. It's like, oh, I'm gonna <laughs> spend all this time on making the best story.
0: <laughs> oh, and you actually have to make. Yeah, story. there are pre-made oh. stories oh, that okay. you can
1: buy, but I just wanted to try because I wanted to try it yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. And so I had this best idea, and <laughs> I played video games. And I know how they start, and so I started. All my friends are in an inn, because that's how you start, <laughs> and a villager came up to ask a question, and he was supposed to set the whole tail, and the first thing my friend did was stab him in the stomach, <laughs> and what happens is, because it's all based off of dice rolls, I can try to be like, no, that doesn't work, but if they roll well enough, I have to be like, you have to, he died. Yeah, so yeah. that's exactly what happened, I was like, well, <laughs> he's dead now and they're like no, what's in his
0: body no journey
1: yeah and so then i had to spend the next like 40 minutes be like well how can i get them to go where i needed them to go and so you get a lot of stuff like that that's a little strange it's also just interesting to you know pretend you're in a different world or you can do that's different so things
0: funny. Wow. yeah
1: and it's like i said it's a really good excuse to like Get together and talk. Also, yeah. throw on under the bus. Uh, Steve and Dan from the gym <laughs> both play Dungeons and Dragons. No,
0: Steve. Okay, yeah. I mean Dan. I mean, yeah, he's married now. Yeah. He's probably like looking for things to do. Yep. But Steve. Yep. I can't imagine Steve because he's a hardcore party. Yeah. Animal.
1: So it's, it's a secret. Everyone out there listening, just, <laughs> just
0: try. It. Pick up a book. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, you play Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. Knock on you with that for next month or two, um, I wonder if Ron plays
1: that. It's like a, I think the thing is, the other, when I first post like this idea to my friends, like half of them were like, yeah, we've been wanting to play but we are all too embarrassed to ever admit it. Yeah. So I think, I think there's probably more people out there and the New Yorker put out an article recently which was a little depressing but interesting. And it was about the resurgence of Dungeons and Dragons, Mm -hmm. and this idea that it was really, really big in the '80s. That's that's when it first came out.
0: Yeah, I think it was like in the movie. uh, What was it, Stranger Things? Yeah, I mean that movie, the the series.
1: Yeah, and so it came back out in Stranger Things, and they released like the new. It's on (coughs) the fifth edition, and so basically, this New Yorker article was talking about this resurgence and this idea that you know people are a lot more into of cheap activities that they can do now, mm-hmm. and it's essentially like an open-ended source of entertainment that you don't have to constantly be buying things for. Mm-hmm. It's not like a video game where you need a system. All you really need is dice and one person who's willing to tell a story, and then you can play this game. Like You can buy different books if you want specific stories or you want more information about a world, but it's a really cheap activity that does allow people to all kind of come together and can be done by just about everyone. Yeah. Wow. So it's like a inclusive but yeah, strange yeah. thing to do.
0: I know Alexa, um, I think she's able to be a dungeon master. Huh. <laughs> like I, or maybe not, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong. I have no idea. Whoever but... out there. Uh, but I saw a video of Alexa reading through a game huh. and I was like, it was a little freaky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, i mean you She'd have to be pretty intuitive to yeah the story you know um but you can i mean i guess you like you said like you were saying oh this guy came in Mm -hmm. um they were like oh i want to stab him like they can just say whatever
1: yeah so there's like there are rules set in place for a lot of different things Mm -hmm. um and of course you can stick directly to the rules or you can kind of be as abstract as you want and there's lots of games that are Similar to Dungeons and Dragons. Um, they're generally called D20 games, so everything revolves around rolling a 20 sided dice. Wow. But, like, for instance, if what I could have done if I wanted to prevent that was to be like, oh, he's wearing armor, so you have to roll, like, a 26, which at their level they wouldn't have been able to do.
0: Or he's a ghost. Yeah, but, like,
1: for the sake of that story, like, the one of the things you should do is, I have all of the information about this person before they meet him. So, like, if I wanted to make him a ghost, I should have said he was a ghost from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if they find that out on their own. But you don't want to go back and be changing facts. And so I just made him a person. And so they're, like, in the book, they're like, average villager this is what they should be (laughs) and my friends just wanted to murder the person (laughs) and they rolled
0: that
1: was was essentially like one of my friends his thing so the the reason i made my own story was because i was hoping to avoid something like this so the whole town was set in a walled village so it's like (laughs) you can only go here like there's a giant wall you can't get out my friend was like i'll find a way to mess this (laughs) up don't you worry
0: that's funny oh man well, Steve and Dan and um, and Jeff, I guess you guys can start. I mean, hey, I might <laughs> Yeah. I want to check ne- next, my little table here. <laughs> next, next
1: game night, man.
0: Yeah, we'll do we'll do a videotaping of a live I mean, not a live of, of a D&D <sighs> match where jeff will be our dungeon master yeah
2: there's
1: so the one thing i'll special, special episode yeah
0: rolling with Simon. there's
1: there's an actual insane amount of podcasts that are just people oh, playing D really? yeah there's That's one of the doing. uh like top rated podcasts is a D- it yeah it's called adventure zone and it's just a D- <laughs> oh i heard of that a, oh my god it's it, hilarious it, it's two uh three brothers and their dad, and they're playing Dungeons and Dragons, and but their hilarious. dad does not know the rules. It is that great. Is
0: hilarious. I, maybe I'll start one called Rolling Dice. With yeah. <laughs> or uh, yeah, but um, no, this, this is really interesting. I think this is one of the most interesting. Just you know, topically, we hit on a lot of different things. But um, as always, like you, I think are one of the most interesting people at the gym. You've done so many crazy things. Um, and your interests lie in so many different areas. It's just uh, very, like, almost like, you know, where it says like master of none, <laughs> you're like master of all. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, it's just, you don't run into too many people like you. You know, I think, I think it's like so interesting to meet somebody that hits the, the center where it's like athlete and, you know, <clears throat> uh, Einstein genius you know, level. Um, and then on top of that, you know, still have swagger, um, you know, good good social, I mean, decent social life. I mean, you still, you got yourself a girlfriend, you're doing uh, Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> you know, playing League of Legends uh, for a little bit. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I was very looking forward to this episode. Mm. Um, I'm really happy we got a chance to do this. So thank you so much. Oh, of course. Uh, it was always, a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying my best. I'm, I'm like the the podcast you're master. the podcast dungeon master yeah, <laughs> yeah i are like leading the conversation man. but um yeah get home safe and i'll see you on the bats man uh, certainly
2: <laughs> all, right. <laughs> all right there you go yeah that the episode
0: that was good all right it's fun I- oh no oh, i think it died oh no What's up, everyone? Thanks so much for watching the episode. If you liked what you saw, make sure to subscribe, comment, like, and definitely share because you never know who this could help. If you'd like to buy any of the products that were discussed, the links are all available in the description below under the video. Make sure to use my links so that I can get paid. And if you'd like to further support what I'm doing, you can send me Bitcoin and Litecoin to my wallet addresses that are also in the description. Thank you all again so much for watching and your support for the project. Peace.